0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students can prepare for college success, experience college life, and make new friends from around the world. More than 300 courses are available. Precollege.brown.edu.
1: You're listening to Boston Public Radio. We're on tape today, replaying some of our favorite conversations. We kick things off with ESPN's Howard Bryant and his new book, The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism, which looks at the historical political pressures on black athletes. We started the conversation with Brian explaining
2: the origins of writing his latest book. I had a question, and that's usually how most books start. You have a question, and you want that question answered. And, and for me, it was, where did the... This revival of, of athletes being activists—where did it come from? We started looking at what the Miami Heat did after Trayvon Martin had been killed, and then the players, Darren Ferguson, and then of course Colin Kaepernick. And they're all wearing hoodies. We should say, all wearing hoodies, yeah, exactly yeah. in the Sports Illustrated cover. And so I started to think about not only about the history of this this legacy, but also that big gap in between of where it went where you had O.J., Michael, and and Tiger Woods. And so what I had uh, found out while interviewing these players is that they would keep talking about this heritage, this legacy that goes back to Paul Robeson, to Jackie Robinson, to Muhammad Ali. And and the players are very proud of this, even the players that you've never heard of who really felt a responsibility to speak up on the part of of African Americans because they were the ones who made it. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that the black athlete is the most influential and most important black employee this country's ever produced. They're the ones who get the money. They're the ones who integrated the, the education. They're the ones who integrated the military and the society with Jackie Robinson. And so they felt a responsibility to be involved. And then sometimes they didn't, and now they're back. Let's go back to the beginning, though, when you mentioned Jackie Robinson, Paul Robeson. I assume most people know Robeson
1: was a great athlete in addition to everything else they, yes. they knew about him at Columbia. Princeton that where, guy. Was Princeton. it Princeton? Okay, yes. I knew it was some Ivy League kind of deal. Talk about Jackie Robinson, particularly the things that I have to say a lot of people, I think, are not going to know, and Robeson and how they
2: inspired this kind of activism. Well, Robeson was obviously one of the most influential, and I, I call him, he's the charter member, and especially the, the point of this entire exercise for me had been that the, the black athlete had you know, never got involved in politics on behalf of black issues black athlete had gotten involved on behalf of America. America, uh, the media during World War II had asked black athletes to get involved in denouncing Nazism, and that the Jewish athletes wanted the black players to, you know, to, to side with them and not even go to the 36 Olympics that were, of course, made famous by Jesse Owens in Berlin. So the first activism of athletes came from issues that had nothing to do with, with black athletes. And then, of course, the third was the famous Paul Robeson-Jackie Robinson confrontation in 1949, when Robeson had said that had there been a war between the United States and Russia, African Americans would fight on the side of Russia or not fight at all. And, of course, Congress, the HUAC, had asked... Jackie Robinson, to come in and denounce those claims.
1: Talk about the House on american Activities Committee testimony, which I'm embarrassed to say I knew it had happened. I didn't know the details like you described in your book
2: of Jackie Robinson when yeah. they call him in the hopes that he will trash Robeson. And he did message. trash Robeson. Essentially, he said that African-Americans have fought too long and done too much in this country to 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 fight against it. And that began the end of Paul Robeson as, a, as, a, as an American figure. I mean, he was... He lost everything. He he was a singer, he was an actor, he was a, a legendary performer. And then you know, during McCarthyism, that was that was pretty much it for him. He went from earning $100,000 a year to about $5,000. And and that had been the moment when people talked about Jackie Robinson and Malcolm X had criticized Jackie Robinson for doing this. But inside of that testimony, he had also brought up what I call the beginnings of this heritage. He he also said that As much as African Americans believe in the United States, that doesn't mean that police brutality doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that inequality doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that all of these different things that Paul Robeson is talking about do not exist. And so to me, that was really the beginning of having a black athlete get involved on behalf of black issues. And so then, obviously, as we go later into the civil rights movement, you go into Ali, you go into Bill Russell, Smith, Carlos, Jim Brown, and then this inheritance began
1: you know that when i'm reading your book the, the image one of the I, I think muhammad ali is not only the greatest athlete of my lifetime but also the most the hugest personality in so many ways i, I, I was talking to one of our photographers when you left last night howard powell uh, about that classic photograph of ali i think it was in cleveland, oh, the cleveland side, sure. with bill russell mm-hmm. on one side of him jim brown obviously one of the greatest football and players kareem. not the greatest ever in kareem abdul uh, uh, Jabbar, how much did the, the the support did others speaking out in the
2: black athletes community provide strength? You know uh, uh, strength well, to those who... Well, it's one of the reasons why you don't have it exist so much today. One of the things that they say in the clubhouse, and Trenny, of course, knows that when she was here, is that the, they always say the smartest guy in the room is the guy with the biggest number of zeros on his paycheck. And when you have that player, whether that player is Ali, whether it's jackie robinson or or whomever it gives cover to the other athletes if you're if you're the star player and you're michael jordan and you're not getting involved with those Mm -hmm. with those issues why would the ninth or tenth man on the roster feel like they had any sort of cover which is why it's so interesting today to see lebron james get so involved lebron james allows other players to actually have more of a voice
1: why did michael jordan decide to stay out of uh politics, and it took a lot of heat, or a decent amount of heat. and still
2: does. Well, I think it's its personality. I don't think it's everybody's personality. One thing that we do talk about, and you didn't get a chance to talk about it last night, but this idea of a heritage is not a club that you want to belong to. I don't think anybody really wants to be involved in this stuff. This is something that you feel like you have to based on the circumstances of, of your life and the circumstances of what's happening with your people. I think that everybody would rather just go play and enjoy and not have sports be as important as they are. So... In Jordan's case, obviously, I I think that, and we got to talk about this a little bit last night as well, I think you have three waves in, in American sports. You have the immigrant story, where the Germans and Italians became Americans by playing sports and by changing the old world and turning into Americans through sport, and boxers as well. Then you have the integration story, where obviously the black athlete began to integrate the American culture. And now this is the less heroic story. This is the money story. This is where players are making super amounts of money. They're now super rich. LeBron James is is his net worth is four hundred and fifty million dollars. Michael Jordan is is the first billionaire uh, black athlete in American history. These players are beyond rich in terms of you know when I did my, my bio on Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron's kids went to public schools. These guys are nowhere <laughs> they're nowhere near the everyday average person. And so This player now has a completely different viewpoint of getting involved in issues. And I think when you're Michael Jordan, you sided more with corporations than you did with with the average person walking down the street. Am
1: I right? Did you not say at one point in an attempt to not upset anybody, I hope I got it right, was it Jordan who, after something happened,
2: gave a million dollars to the NAACP Legal Defense and a million dollars to was, the cops so that he basically... That's right. So he was essentially saying that he's on both sides, which I don't think can exist. you there's, you're trying to be in the middle when there's no middle.
1: We're talking to Howard Bryan. His book is The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism.
3: Tell um, the story about Coretta Scott King inviting uh, inviting uh, uh, Jordan to the wreath laying thing.
2: Yeah, that was a story in the, in the 90s when Coretta Scott King had personally invited Michael Jordan to come lay the wreath on uh, Martin Luther King's grave for the 25th, uh, marking the 25th anniversary of his death, and... Michael Jordan had kind of agreed to do it, but he didn't really want to do it. And at the last minute, he, he called his teammate, Craig Hodges, and said, Yeah, Hodge, this is really your thing. You want to go in my place? And so even that level of responsibility, he simply didn't really want any part of. And, and one of the things in the book that I talk about that I think is really important is this notion of, of what your blackness means to you in moving into this culture that we spend a lot of time using words like being colorblind or not seeing race and transcending race. And and in a lot of ways, it's really insulting language. Why would I want to transcend something that's a part of me? Why is this this something to overcome? I don't have to overcome it. I like what I see when I look in the mirror. And I think that the, the hard part for these athletes is, and you see it with these guys now, is that once you speak up on an issue now you run the risk of offending your fan base. Now you run the risk of offending your, your sponsors. And, you know, of course, Michael Jordan was very, very close to Nike. He was Nike. He built Nike. And so the players, the minute you get involved in a political issue, the first thing they see is, is everyone going to turn on me? And... That is the fear that they all have. And so legitimate, they, legitimate fear. Well, it's fear. a legitimate fear. And one of the things in the book, Marjorie, that I found that was really interesting, and I sort of missed it, and I hate when I miss things in books, but was the the female element of this. I talk a lot about Rachel Robinson and how she's really responsible. The reason why we still talk about Jackie Robinson today is not because he was such a great, great man, and he was. It's because of Rachel. It's because Rachel made sure that you didn't forget her husband. But one of the things that people have asked me, a lot of the female readers have said, well, what about the female heritage? Where, where are they? And it's a great question. And I think that it's, I didn't talk about it as, as much as I should, and I will in, next, in, in future projects, is the women play individual sports. There are not. The team sports, yeah, women, women don't make yeah. money in team sports the way Serena made $100 million and Venus makes $70 million and all the, the the individual athletes, the the money that they earn. However, if you are an individual athlete and you take a, a stand on a political issue, the very first thing that's at risk is your money because the sponsors are going to come after you, especially if you're a Dominique Dawes or, or Simone Biles or if you are an, a, a gymnast, if you're an Olympian where your money... Depends on endorsements they're going to run for cover and so the female athlete is far more at risk to take political stances because their money is going to be directly affected by it. We're talking to Howard
1: Bryant who also thinks 9-11 was a huge turning point in this whole the turning thing. Point. The turning point. Here's a little piece that I bet most of you remember first Super Bowl after 9-11 here's the owner of the Patriots Bob Kraft uh, speaking to the crowd after the Patriots won
4: Spirituality, faith, and democracy are the cornerstones of our country. We are all patriots. We are
1: all patriots. How, did, how was 9-11, as you said, the critical
2: thing? Well, I think that's the, the part, to me, that we miss a lot of. When we talk about black athletes taking a knee, and we talk about police brutality, and we talk about all these issues, and we focus so much on, on the black player, we don't focus on the biggest change in sports and how sports are sold and how sports are marketed, and that's, that's 9-11. For me, when I was a kid, the thing that you feared the most was the Russians. I mean, it was the Cold War. <laughs> that was what we were most afraid of. I grew up in Dorchester and then down in Plymouth. I lived right next to Pilgrim down by the, the power plant down there. So whenever it rained, there was like a, the sirens would go off. And we're like, you know, it's the day oh after. And so all those things would take place. But today, if you're my son who was born in 2004, if you were born in, say, 1990, 9-11, you were 10 years old, 11 years old. 9-11 is the defining issue. It's the def- defining moment of your life. And if you look at sports during that period, before 9-11, maybe you can go to one of the most iconic moments was Whitney Houston singing the national anthem during the 1990 Super, 1991 Super Bowl with the Giants and the Bills. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, but after that, all of the different elements, the displays, the flags, the flyers, all that stuff went away. Today it's still here. It's still going on. You're still singing "God Bless America" during the seventh inning. You still you you sell sports as there's, there's a I think before game game two well, before all the games of the playoffs now, you've got the big American flag across the 50 yard line, across half court, across the outfield, and all of it. It's all being sold and being packaged as embedded into sports, and that hasn't changed. I talked to a Red Sox executive not too long ago, and I said, "Why? It's almost been 20 years after 9/11." Why are we still singing God Bless America? And he said, because we would get killed if we were the first ones to stop doing it. So they don't even know why they're doing it anymore. It's simply now part of sports. But don't you also make the point, Howard Bryant, that,
1: that essentially the in the post-9-11 era, the, the support that everybody uh, professes to have, at least for the military, at least members of the military, is sort of mixed with support for police officers. Well, absolutely. Because, which, is, yes, which means if you protest that which a police officer does,
2: then by definition, as Donald Trump would tell us, you're unpatriotic. Well, exactly. And that's one of the things that happened. And I lived in New York. I was covering the Yankees during 9-11. And so I was on 49th and 10th when, that all, when it all went down. And I remember what took place with the Yankees and how they began to bring in all of the, everyone, there became a conflation, and that conflation still exists, and they now call them all first responders. Mm-hmm. Military, cops, fire, it's all the same. And it's actually not all the same. I got a letter a couple of years ago after a column I wrote at ESPN, the magazine, talking about the, the marketing of Memorial Day, how Memorial Day is a somber day. It is not supposed to be sold and packaged. It's a, it's a sad day honoring people who were, killed in and in, 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 in duty and yet major league baseball sells it with stars and stripes and camouflage and, and all of these things and i got a letter saying uh from a reader saying why are you criticizing cops on memorial day and i uh, he said to send him a message back on you do know that police have nothing to do with memorial day right no response of course <laughs> but st- but still but that's what it looks like today today we sell all of this in in, in one and, and I think what that does is it creates this collision. What this book is really about is it's the collision between post-9-11 sports and the post-Ferguson black athlete. So if you're a black athlete looking at what's taking place in your community, that does not jibe. If you're Carmelo Anthony looking at Freddie Gray in Baltimore where he grew up, then you go to work where the Knicks are playing the Celtics and you've got Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. Those two things are colliding. And the response from the public is shut up and play. But it's really difficult to do that when you're from that community. It's not like we're making fun of Jane Fonda for talking about Vietnam. You've got Carmelo Anthony's from this community. A lot of these athletes are actually from the communities where these things are taking place. It's really hard to tell them and very insulting to tell them not to talk.
3: Yeah. um, Well, also, of course, if the athletes, as we just saw with the guy from the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, what's his name? Sterling Brown. Sterling Sterling Brown. Brown. You know, if you're not on the basketball court or the football field, you're a young African-American man that the cops have been focusing on uh, lethally in many instances. But I want to just mention something, because you mentioned this with Trini Kuznarek when she was on this before, about the money. And you talk about uh, the these study that John McCain did with Jeff Flake about yep. the money uh, that the military is spending uh, on all this advertising in sports. Tell us about that. Well, exactly. Well, for all the
2: things that we talk about with division, the one thing that I really enjoyed about doing this book was whether you were – Liberal or conservative Democrat Republican, the one thing from talking to all these veterans in this book was that they do not like the flag being weaponized and they do not like feeling like props. I have a section that one of the chapters is called props because the 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 veterans themselves are like, well why this is this is crass commercialism, especially when we know that the Department of Defense is paying for this when we know that the patriots are not having an organic display to to honor a veteran who's, you know, got a surprise homecoming. They paid the Depart- the Massachusetts National Guard paid the Patriots for this. The Milwaukee Brewers charged the Wisconsin National Guard forty nine thousand dollars to sing God bless America. This is all for show. This is for money. And the the veterans themselves don't like they want the VA to get fixed. They they want jobs. They have other issues involved here. And so I think what's been really, really difficult is that the public doesn't know this. The public doesn't believe this is taking place. I had a wonderful conversation. I don't know if it was wonderful, but it was really revealing with um, with Russell Honoré, the three-star general. And we were talking about this, and I said to him, I said, Well, maybe I just want my son to go to a Red Sox game and be a fan. He's 10 years old, and I want him to, or 12 years old, I said, I want him to enjoy the game. And he said... I said, I don't really want him to be surreptitiously recruited by the Army. And he said, well, too bad. we got to arm the force. And this is, you know, we, you know, hold on to those little SOBs as long as you can because we need to man the force. And if there's a kid out there that is at a Dallas Cowboys game and they look over and see an F-14 fly overhead during the National Anthem and that makes them want to join the Army, then mission accomplished. And so there's a lot taking place here in terms of uh, the images that are being sold to us and the messages that are being sold to us during sports, which is supposed to be the place where we're supposed to relax and have fun.
1: So we're talking to Howard Bryant. Howard, you trace the history of the heritage up to basically current events. Can we do a little uh, forward-looking uh, for a second? Uh, three o'clock this afternoon, Donald Trump's going to play the national anthem. He hopes that a thousand Eagle fans are going to show up, because the Eagles were, were disinvited, as we discussed with, <laughs> with Trenny. What happens... Next year in terms of activism, for the most part, we talked about this being a, quote, solution in search of a problem because most of the kneeling had abated by the end of the season. What's the reaction going to be of the 70 percent of the I think it's 70 percent of the players in the NFL who are African-Americans to to the deal cut with the owners a couple of weeks ago, clearly kneeling down to Trump, for lack
2: of better expression, and then the the disinvitation to the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, I think we're going to find out what they're made of. We're going to find out if the players really do have any type of solidarity along these lines. They weren't going to fight for Colin Kaepernick, and they didn't. They made a deal with the owners, a $90 million deal to fight social justice together they got stabbed in the back by the owners in my opinion when the owners went out and put out an anthem policy anyway even though the players had mm-hmm. essentially agreed to to work with them and now of course you've got the president who is continuing this culture war he's essentially using the players as part of this culture war and i think that you're going to see it continue this year because you've got midterms coming up and i think that as you see as a political as as a political issue he's getting a lot of traction from it and and the argument that i've made earlier is that this is simply you know, the, sort of the, the notion that you can question somebody's citizenship whenever you want. Now you're using the players as, as, the, as the target. The target before had been whether, whether you're talking about welfare queens or Willie Horton, now it's ballplayers. And I think during an election year you're going to see more of that. And I was going to say, Marjorie, one thing I think is really also important what? too about players is that when it comes to money, we listen to people in the culture who have money. We, if you have money, you can become president. Why are we talking about Mark Cuban or Oprah Winfrey being Howard presidential Schultz candidates today, or Howard we Schultz yesterday? About, yeah. Exactly. But when it comes to the black athlete who has money, we want them to be quiet and to be grateful. Everybody else, when you have money, we have to listen to you all day long. And so it also speaks to this idea of how we view the player, the, this, this notion that you belong to us and, and the player... In any other field, if you had $100 million in the bank, people would want to hear more from you. But with these guys, we want to hear less.
3: You know what I wonder? um, Because obviously Colin Kaepernick has paid a huge price for his courage. He's not playing football. And Um, won't. And and won't. Uh, um, That uh, There's at least half the NFL teams are African-American, or sometimes more than half the team.
1: 70% of the players, roughly. Is that not right? So
3: so is the issue that... um, there's the, the, the money or not getting to play cuz i i thought initially that we might see solidarity among the the black players is it the money or losing your job or just i don't want to get involved and all of the
2: above it's all of the above and all of the above okay. especially because in football they control your money people talk about bill belichick being this great coach bill belichick would be a very very different coach in the nba when the contracts are 100% guaranteed well that's a big
3: difference right and so right?
2: yeah they control your money and yeah. if i can LeBron James's money or Alex Rodriguez's $275 million contract extension, every penny of that is guaranteed. And that changes, that changes your options. That changes the dynamic. It changes everything. And so the players know that, and the players recognize as well that the average, for all we talk about, the, the millions that the players get, the average football career is three years. So you're not going to take many risks with that small window.
3: Howard Bryant is a senior writer for ESPN. His latest book is The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Up next, Harvard Business School's Michael Norton is here to discuss his latest research on leisure time. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're on tape today, replaying conversations, which includes the one we had with Harvard Business School's Michael Norton on his latest research, which looks at who values leisure time, who doesn't, and why it matters.
3: What's your research say? What's your thesis?
1: We,
5: um, this is um, research with Gabby Tonietto, who's at uh, Rutgers University, who studies um, how people spend their time in general. And one of the things she's really interested in is uh, people's beliefs about how they should spend their time, which is a little bit different, actually. So we, we all have a day and we spend our time in various ways, but we also have beliefs about how we should be spending our time that don't always align. And one of the funny ones that we've been working on is this idea that we can take leisure time, and there's a belief that sort of, you know, the word leisure means that you're enjoying yourself. But there's this very large group of people. It's not 5% of people. It's like half of people who think that having any sort of leisure is a complete waste of their time, (laughs) and they resist going to it if they can, and when someone makes them do it, they don't really like it so much.
3: So would those be the people that are workaholics, or would those be the people that think they can't, if they're going to come home after work, they have to mow the lawn, or they have to mulch the garden, or what is it?
5: Yeah, there's this um, personality trait um, called, it's a productivity mindset which sounds good, which is like you want to be productive and do things. So those, those are good employees because they want to do stuff, but they can't turn it off. So they're, not, they're unable to keep accomplishing things even when they have downtime. And so you're right. They keep working and working and working and mowing the lawn and never stopping. And everyone else is sitting around having some drinks, and they're out <laughs> mowing the lawn you know, for 12
1: hours. So I want to focus on the people that have an, this, this negative belief about the value of leisure, the most fascinating. I wasn't surprised by that. Maybe the numbers surprised Mm -hmm. me. What was upsetting, if not surprising, were the consequences of that negative belief. One consequence was obvious to me. You work more. You take less vacation. I want to get to that in a couple of seconds. What are some of the other... I don't know if consequences is the right word, but the somethings of having a negative belief in the value of uh, leisure time? Yeah, a couple of of things. One is, so we asked... um people, their
5: beliefs about, about leisure time, and then we also gave them some personality tests. Uh-huh. And people who believe that leisure is wasteful, among other things, are less agreeable people, mm-hmm. meaning they're not as fun to talk to, yeah. and they're more neurotic people. Not just, And these are not just in the context of leisure. This is in their lives overall. They're less agreeable people, and they're a little bit more neurotic as well. So think about how that plays out in your life. But the other big one is actually that we gave... Also, measures of kind of well being in life, overall well being in this life. This is huge. Literally, actually. a question like on a scale from one to ten how well is your life going for you? People who believe that leisure is wasteful are less happy with their lives, not just with their leisure. With their lives than people who think that leisure is actually a good and use can of you time. make
1: a correlation that it is their negative attitude about their free time that in part causes their the diminution in their well being you're nodding yes
5: yes exactly and we even gave a scale on um, assessing depression people who believe that leisure is wasteful they're not they're not clinically depressed but they're they're higher on the scale measuring depression than
1: people who aren't. And you distinguished your research. We're talking to Michael Norton from Harvard Business School about these negative, the very high negative aspects about the belief in the value of leisure time. You distinguished or those people distinguished between, I don't know if you use this terminology, productive leisure, which almost sounds oxymoronic. But it's like going to the gym or doing something where you can say there's a real benefit yeah. as opposed to just like vegging out on your deck or on the beach or some such thing, right? The beach, it's funny because it depends what you do
5: on the beach. So if, if you're talking to people or, you know, throwing a ball around, then the beach could be productive. The, the, the passive leisure kind of thing is the, some of the categories. So watching TV is obviously passive leisure. Right. There's one where you, <laughs> on the, you know, it's a bunch of activities that you can check. And one of them is literally doing nothing. You just click, I'm doing nothing right now. And that's not really very good for your well-being. But the active stuff, I mean, exercise is great, but also doing a hobby, Uh talking to other people, those are the kinds of things that are better leisure than the other kinds.
3: You know, I was thinking, too, and I don't know if you get into this, but when people do go on vacation, you know, sometimes you go on a vacation, maybe you go to the seat on TV all the time, sandals, and you just sit around all day long drinking, you know, pina coladas and floating in the pool. Or you go on like a... Uh, sightseeing vacation. I just was, got, went to Ireland and we drove all over the, the the west coast of Ireland, which is an active vacation. So I would assume the people that think leisure time is a waste of time feel as though they, they, they could never do the sandals thing, but they might drive all over the west you gotta coast.
5: You've got to be doing something, right? Yeah, they're, they're less likely to, to engage in any kind of leisure. But within leisure, they like the active kind instead of yeah. uh, sitting on the sitting-on-the-pool kind. Are
1: yep. we? I, I don't know if you did this research. Uh, our number is 877 In a few minutes, we're going to take your calls. And this. Which camp do you fall into, and would you like to – if you are one who has a negative belief in the value of leisure, would you like to change that perception? Maybe Michael has some advice. Are we aberrational? In that regard, we get fewer vacation days than virtually any industrialized country. We take fewer vacation days than virtually any industrialized country, which suggests to me that we are aberrational in terms of this negative belief in the value Am I right or am I not? You're not, uh, you're not right, as, as usual. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry to
5: say. Um, well, we don't know exactly. Let me, re- let me rephrase. So Thank we you. did that get was data throw, from...
1: Throw the guy a bone. <laughs> a,
5: a few. You should take your headphones off and go. Marjorie and I thought it's... We um, got data from some other countries. We got data from India, and we got data from... We thought, what's a country that's associated with long vacation Like We got data from France. We don't have data from every country, though. So at least in those other two countries, things look very similar to the way they work here. Really? Yes, they take more vacation days and have more vacation days. But the the people still believe some people still believe leisure is wasteful, and those people don't really want to take the vacation days, and they don't really enjoy it when they're on. Okay,
1: well let me take another shot since I blew that one. Uh, Stay within the United States. Do we take? Such little vacation. And by the way, I looked it up this morning. In the 80s, we took an average of 20 days. We're now down to 16, mm. uh, which is higher than I actually thought. But it's lower than it was, and it's lower than the rest of the world. Do we take fewer days because we have these – uh, a lot of us have strong negative beliefs that there's no positive value in leisure as leisure? Is that what motivates our uh, – unwillingness to sort of let ourselves loose kind of thing?
5: It's, it's related but actually not that strongly. So I think there's a lot of other pressures that relate to Americans not taking vacation days like uh, yes you technically have them but if you take them your boss You're judges you. are a Yeah. So yeah. I think it's probably um, a combination of many things. I think this, what we're studying is a little part of that big phenomenon I think there's a lot of things contributing to that engage in leisure well
1: I assumed one of the callers is going to ask this but I don't want to wait I'll ask since you use the word manipulation if someone is in the negative view of the value of leisure camp what can you manipulate that makes them more likely to be convinced there's some positive value in it what do you do I would probably suggest drugs and alcohol is <laughs>
2: solution to most things. Is there a solution? Yeah. yeah.
5: We do show in, in some of the studies that if we can get people to think a little bit more that leisure is not a complete waste of time, right. that is possible to do. Then they will a little bit more. Well, how do you
1: do the first step, though? How do you make them believe that it's not a waste of time?
5: For example, we can give um, honest, uh, real research that suggests that leisure is beneficial to you, for example. And when people read that, they don't change their minds overnight, of course, because people are skeptical. But we can push them a little bit toward if we say, look, here's 10 things that leisure is associated with. We can push people a little bit more towards saying, oh, maybe I should engage in a
1: little bit of leisure.
3: And one last question, and then we will get to the uh, 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 phone calls. What's the Twitter handle again, please, Jim?
1: I have no idea. What is it? Okay. I don't know. BOS Public Radio. Thank at you. BOS Public Radio, Marjorie. Why don't okay. you write that down? I'm writing it down. Thank you. Um,
3: and the number is 877-301-8970. When you say that people that uh, uh, embrace leisure are happier and less stressed and often less depressed, does it matter what kind of leisure they embrace? I mean, whether it's sandals or climbing Mount Everest, you, Does it matter?
5: It does. So the um, active leisure that we were talking about a little bit is much more strongly predictive of well-being. Really? So doing hobbies, uh, interacting with other people, exercising, those things are much more strongly predictive. Than
3: than hanging out, drinking the pina coladas. Yeah.
5: Um, But uh, if if you are in a stressful environment and you need a break, hanging out and drinking pina coladas is is certainly better than continuing to work uh, all the time.
3: Okay, uh, we are going to take a break. Like I said, we're going to yep. call uh, when we come back. We're going to take uh, your phone calls eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy is the number. I'm fixing my email here. I hope because it's not working at the moment. And if they
1: want to tweet us, Marjorie, do you have any idea yes, how they'd be able it's to do this?
3: At BOS Public Radio. Wow! Third time's a charm, Jim. Listen are listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. And we are broadcasting live from our studio at the Boston Public Library.
1: Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're on tape today, replaying conversations, which includes the one we had with Harvard Business School's Michael Norton on his latest research, which looks at who values leisure time, who doesn't, and why it matters. So Emily in Boston, you've been very patient. You're next on Boston Public Radio with Michael Norton. We're talking about the value of leisure and how you perceive it. Welcome, Emily. Hi. Great
6: conversation. Thanks. Um, I had a question. I think I've always erred on the side of Uh, worrying about wasting time. But when I had, I had my first child right out of grad school. And when I became a mom, it was like, oh my God, every hour I have to account for, I, especially if I was paying a babysitter or even had asked my husband to be on double duty with our kids. And so I'm just wondering, my husband, by the way, does not feel that same pressure. And no, they I never do, know. do they? Yes. Well, I didn't want to sound... Yes. I mean, it's just funny how that... He sleeps like a rock as well. Um, and so I'm just wondering if there's any studies... I mean, it was real anxiety for me, uh, unless I'm on my run or I'm on my errand, you know, something I've decided is productive... I don't like, even when I pick out a TV show, if it's not great ratings, it's only eh, I won't even waste my time doing that. So I just didn't know if there was something either about becoming a parent, a mother, or as a woman. That's a great question. So, okay, thank you. I love that, Emily. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, thanks guys.
5: Take it away, Michael. We'll assume that Emily's husband will be calling in shortly to <laughs> set the record straight. No, he's sleeping. He's <laughs> like a rock, is a great You can uh, relate to that. You're a new dad. How are you doing there, Michael? Sleeps like a rock. Sleeps like a rock. What's the answer? No feelings. No, just a rock, a dead rock of worthless rockness. Uh, it's a good, so I do think, so when you have major life changes. Uh, like having a child, uh, your time just, as people who have children know, just dramatically changes in every way. And you do start going from, you know, what do we feel like doing tomorrow to what are we going to do for every five minutes and plan it out and things like that. And that is this this, um, uh, belief that kind of you need to schedule your time. There's other research that suggests that when you think about your time like that, it is a source of stress and anxiety. Like uh, think of lawyers who bill every hour, every five minutes to clients and things. That's not that fun to live a life where you're billing little increments of time. But um, there are ways to think about it differently where you're kind of thinking of your time more generally uh, that can help uh, relieve some of that anxiety. But it's very, very difficult when you have uh, a newborn for sure.
1: But, you know, Emily raised an interesting point that that you amplified by indirection there. Uh, I'm a salaried employee, and so I get my X number of days vacation, and I still get paid. That lawyer, you're you, <laughs> stunning. I uh, for this? Program. For this? That? Uh, the, I understand Marjorie receiving a salary, exactly. but I can't That lawyer you I'm talked about, or somebody, a, a contract employee, doesn't get paid when he or she goes on vacation. It would seem to me my ability, knowing the paychecks keep coming, creates a different environment for me to make decisions about my leisure time than that man or woman who knows that they're not making money. Yeah, when,
5: you, you know. I do. And, it, and it, it does, but it's not as a big a difference as you'd think. Really? Yeah, so even when you have a salary job and you get a vacation, you know, and you still get paid, people still think it's a waste of time and I probably shouldn't do it and maybe I'll stay home and work on something um, instead. So it helps, but it doesn't sort of solve, solve the problem. Okay. I do think, by the way, to Emily's question, There's a uh, you can think of people as being maximizers or satisficers, in the world, there's a lot of research on this. So, a satisficer is, uh, let's go out for dinner. Why don't we? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Okay, let's do that. A maximizer is, I need to do 12 days of research on the restaurants uh, in order to find out the very best restaurant. It sounds like Emily's a little further on the maximizer scale. There's nothing wrong with being a maximizer, but it takes a lot of time, and you're always worried that you're not doing the right thing or the best thing with your time. So, it's a little bit easier in life to move down the scale toward satisfies her, which is you get outcomes that you're satisfied with. They just might not be the very best thing.
3: You know, I know this isn't. This is outside of your research, but you do wonder where that comes from. You know, is it is it your parents? Is it just a genetic thing? Or even if you have more than two or three children, you can see that one of them is mm-hmm. like a neurotic basket case, and one <laughs> of them is like falling off the couch. You know, it's it's. I think we know?
1: we know. We're sure we do.
3: What Trump.
1: So, 301 897 What are you talking about? Every single weekend... He goes to what his ability, at least it seems to me, to play golf, to relax, is epic. I mean that in a complimentary way. But he
3: says he's a workaholic. He doesn't like to take long vacations. He doesn't want to go to sandals. He, I mean, he goes and plays. But he does golf. go away
1: every single weekend and he plays golf he every. He and plays while golf
3: get, every weekend. Well, I don't begrudge anybody going off. No, I don't either. And and I'm,
1: no, I'm not at all. I'm complimenting him for the fact but that he, he says
3: he doesn't like to like take vacations. Like I'm gonna, he's going to go mm-hmm. to not forget being the president of the United States. He doesn't like to go to Paris for two weeks or something like that. No, he, he actually. Likes to Last night
1: you were why he said he's hoping to vacation in Pyongyang actually (laughs) for a couple of weeks.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. But do we know is it is it Do we know anything about that? I don't think we
5: know exactly where these, uh, they are, um, there is a genetic component to these, Yeah. but as you said, anyone who has kids understands it's certainly not all genetics because they they can be quite different. And you know,
3: the other thing is that that you see people, I was just thinking about this having just returned from vacation, there are people that do, can really organize a trip. You know, nobody goes to, or very few people use travel agents anymore, they're all organizing these trips, and some people like me find it, I mean, it would be easier to climb Mount Everest (laughs) than than to organize a trip (laughs) and figure out where you're going and what you're going to do in the restaurants, where. You're going to stay. Shocking. I mean, it's like, oh my God. But some people are really good at that.
5: Yeah. The whole point of the vacation is actually that you're checking things off the itinerary at the correct time. And those are the people who think leisure
1: isn't so great and you need to move, move, go, go, go. Exactly. You know? let's, yeah. let's go to Chuck on a Highway. Some highway, anyway. You're on Boston Public Radio with Michael Norton. Hey, Chuck. Hi. Well,
7: Hi. I'm not on the highway anymore, so it's a little less stress than that we got. Wherever you are, Alex we're glad to, to say, have you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, my, my, my point I want to bring up is the fact that, to, to speaking of leisure, uh, we've. i remember in the 60s. We talked about in the future, there'd be more leisure time, and work week would be 30 hours a week or less, et cetera, et cetera. But what we've turned into is people are running 2 or three jobs.
3: Yeah. While the
7: Belliniers are sitting around, making you know, sitting on their work, basically, all these people working through excess. We have cashiers that are self checkout so that, that they can lay people off, et cetera. And we've devalued the fact that we should have more leisure time as an ongoing thing. People feel guilty now that they're not working enough, they're not doing enough. But, you know, other civilizations, quite utils, et cetera, used to work 15 hours a week, and they enjoyed their, their lives more, and they had more family time, and they even had excess. They would give off cowlatches and such. So I, I just thought that I should bring that up. Maybe a Harvard Business School guy ain't the right guy to be talking about that, more like an anthropology department. <laughs> But maybe you could treat that. I think we, we, we have bumps that are sky high because people are doing too much of too many things, creating too much refuse. And I think we, we need to reevaluate the value of leisure as actually something which should be a good thing, not necessarily a bad thing.
1: Chuck, thank you for the call. You have an odd Cheshire kind of uh, smile on your face. What does that mean there, Michael? Uh, Just at the the Harvard Business School, we just are
5: huge fans of layoffs in general. We just (laughs) strongly support, even for no reason, we just think that. No, I think it's a great, you made great points, actually. I think that the uh, um, automation and speeding everything up is good because it speeds everything up and makes things easier, and then it has real, real consequences, as we can see, I think one of the issues for, um, so that's kind of at the macroeconomic level with layoffs and things, but even in our personal lives, things get faster, and we keep adding more as a result. So so when something gets easier to do, we don't take that time Mm -hmm. and and use it to relax. We take that time and use it to do something else.
1: Kurt in New Bedford, you're on Boston Public Radio, Marjorie and Jim Browdy, and Michael Norton from Harvard Business School. Hi, Kurt. Hey, how's it going? Excellent.
7: Um, question: just wondering about like the age demographics that we know a uh, mm. certain generational that seems to have a problem with this or uh, is it kind of wide across like from new to the working uh, working class to all the way up to you know looking at retirement.
1: That's a good one. How about the demographic breakdown?
5: We only, we don't, have, it is a great question. We don't have um, great data on um, uh, retired people because they, we don't have any in our sample. I think it would be a great a great group to think about, especially if, if you think about as you retire, do your beliefs shift or not? So, so as you have more leisure time, maybe not leisure time, as you have more time not working, do you take more leisure? But even more importantly, do you shift to thinking that it's a good thing to do? I think we all know people who retire and you think, wow, they have a lot of time now. They're going to enjoy their leisure. And they lose their minds because they, they want to be productive and they want to be working and they want to be doing or things. Or they
1: die like a minute and a half after they leave their job. That's even more morbid than what I was saying. No, but, but. it's true. I mean, there's some horrible examples Keep
3: working, that. Jim. You know, uh, River on Twitter just said something I think you hear people say a lot, which is it usually takes me a few days of vacation yeah. to downshift to leisure. Wish I had more time. And you hear that. I, I've heard that a lot of people saying that one week is never enough. You need two weeks to... Scale down. Yeah. Well, it's
1: not only really scaled down, but you start getting anxious the last couple of days when yeah. you finally calm down about the fact that you've got to go back to right. what it is you left. Yeah, there's a lot of research, not by, not by me, but a lot of research on
5: vacations. Uh, and one thing is, what's your goal on, on vacation? So, so employers can think, I want employees to have time off so when they come back they'll be invigorated and more productive. It's very unclear if that's the case from the employee standpoint, what are you trying to accomplish on your vacation? Are you trying to just relax? Are you trying to do the things that you couldn't do when you're working? Are you trying to spend more time with family? So there's so many different things, aspects of what a vacation even is that it's very complex to think about kind of what they do for us over time.
1: Here's a great tweet from Doreen. I'm a teacher, she writes. We were told to assign homework during a snow day this winter. I asked the kids to sit and really observe the snow coming down and describe what they experienced. They loved it. There are ways, writes uh, Doreen, to be quiet and engaged. That's pretty
0: great. Oh, I love Doreen, that, that is I that
3: it. is wonderful. That is wonderful. That reminds me of, of one of our old uh, t- uh, talk radio buddies, uh, Christopher Lydon, when he used to, uh, a million years ago, have this oh. show. That on the day that it snowed really a lot in Boston, he spent an hour. On snow poetry, mm. I'll never forget that. I was you actually called me trans- on the phone. We were on our
1: way to our other job, and you yeah. said you should listen. I said, "Are you kidding?" And it was brilliant. Kaylee on Twitter also uh, says, "Well, younger this is the question for you, Michael. Well, younger generations growing up with technology have a hard time putting it down and taking leisure time than their elders." That's a variation of what Marjorie was talking about a minute ago. That's a good question too. No,
5: it um, we don't know yet. It depends on honestly how you define leisure time. I so, mean, they might define that, using their phone as leisure they, time. They may, right? So if, if we said playing a board game is leisure time, and they're on their phone playing a game with their friend you know, across the, the town... What's the difference? It's hard to okay. say that they're not engaged in leisure. I think the tricky thing about phones is that they have these things called notifications. And mm-hmm. so you're in leisure mode on your yeah. phone, but then you, the, it buzzes in the email and you get the text. And so it's harder, actually, to separate leisure from work because it's all on your phone. Yeah. Whereas right. if you're playing a board game and your phone's in the other room, it's easier to stay engaged. Exactly. In
3: leisure. I remember being able to give my complete attention to shoots and Ladders, <laughs> <in> Candy Land,
5: <laughs> the most <laughs> complex
3: human game. Exactly. Tony, Tony in-, in Boston. Hi, Tony. Hello, Tony.
7: Hey. Hello. Hi. Uh, and uh, Hey. Happy uh, Independence Day to you all. Same Thank to you. you. Well, I was, what I'm calling about is uh, independent workers. You know, self-employed people who don't have a chance to take yeah. off. Right. 'Cause mm-hmm. I used to work for oh, Jesus, twenty some years I worked for a guy. I worked eleven hours a day, five days a week and people would always come in and joke at me like, you know, don't you ever get a day off? And I'd go, Yeah, I get hundred and four days off each year, every Saturday and Sunday. You know? Or they or they if we get a holiday I'd go, like, where'd you go? I'd go, Well, I went outside, you know, like <laughs> Where am I going to go? i got to work. <laughs> well, that's yeah, a variation that's a great, of what I
1: asked you before yeah. about contract employees. <laughs> that's, and, a no, yeah, that's a great one. No, that's it's good you're laughing, Tony, because it's horrible. Yeah. But th- how about it? Yeah, the uh, uh, Tony
5: sounds like someone who has the belief that leisure is good and productive and helpful, and it's very difficult to be in, in the job or or situation in your life where you can't actually take leisure when you want to of course yeah you know there are hard. a
1: growing number of employers including a company here which is quite prominent in town the name of which of course totally escapes me that require people To take their vacation, meaning they don't just provide a decent amount of vacation. And by the way, some people think that I I wrote a piece about this for the Globe magazine a few years ago. Companies that offer unlimited vacation, it doesn't work for the most part. Doesn't mean people will take it, even though you think they would, because they trust their employees to get their work done. Doesn't matter. But some companies are literally forcing you out the door. But the problem is when you get out the door, the dilemma that you're describing still exists, right? Yeah. Whether or not they really value the time off or their angst-written. That's angst right. Written and That's that right. and
5: some thing. employers are playing with uh, – I talked to a, a startup where they um, – the, in the summer, they have Fridays off. And uh, not everyone has Fridays off, but some employees do. And they dis- deactivate their IDs. So
0: like they, can't, really they, get get they can't the even get oh. So they have
5: to get a friend to sneak them in if they wanted to come in. Because you're right. If you tell people – hey, it's fine, Once you take Friday off? Well, maybe they're going to think you're a bad worker, you know, you're a lazy guy or whatever yeah. it might be, but others you aren't. have to mandate I it love for that. people to... I well, love you know what's really, really
3: cool. interesting in this um, thing about vacation days, American news per year? This is from Fortune. They had a chart of, uh, of uh, when we were really paranoid about using vacation days, and, of course, it was right after the recession. Yeah, of course. You know, everybody was afraid to take any time off then, and now it's going back up that people are more confident... In the economy. So I but it's still a
1: lot lower than it was 20-plus years ago. It's a lot lower than it yeah, was 20-plus
3: years ago. But, but, I, but, but so what do you attribute that to? Why, why, why were we less neurotic about taking vacation in 1980 than we are in 2018?
5: I, I think a lot of it is just sort of the – it is true that as um, job pressure increases, yeah. uh, people, people take less vacation. And I think a culture of work – is what we have in America uh, compared to other countries. And many researchers have tracked that kind of to the even if you – first off, we have fewer vacation days, and then we take fewer of them. Both of those effects, I think, are contributing.
1: Can we spend the last minute here on uh, that thing about turning off your IDs? I totally love. What else can employer – assuming that the average employer believes – that the more their employees value their time off, the better and more productive they're going to be, which all the research suggests they are. You're nodding in agreement when they come back. What else do employers do that's creative uh, on that front?
5: It's, it's interesting. Not, not a lot. I mean, I think that employ- if you think of typical compensation plans for employers, they involve money. Uh, yeah, you know, you get your vacation, but like if you want to make employees be happy, you give a bonus, something like that.
1: Here it is. But as you said that, one of our coworkers uh, said, uh, uh, well, I guess I, this is actually from what I wrote for the Globe magazine. Oops. In response, <laughs> Evernote in California, I didn't remember this, is taking it one step further by offering a perk on top of a perk. Take at least a week off, they tell workers to get a $1,000 bonus. So mm. they essentially pay you. To not work—that's pretty good too. Is That's pretty it great,
5: yeah. And we've been—my uh, colleague at um, HBS, Ashley Willens, who studies employee motivation and things—we've been thinking about things like um, you could motivate an employee by saying, "You must come in. You, you, we like you. So you get uh, one day this month where you must come in to work an hour late. Just that." And people get very excited, especially people with kids, get very excited about that, right? Oh, that's because that great. one Because that one devastating morning when everything yeah. goes wrong. So we're really trying to think about what are the time rewards that really make that's a great. huge difference in employees' lives. And it might not be a month-long vacation because some people actually bizarrely don't enjoy a month-long vacation. But they might enjoy the one hour in the morning to get stuff done. Oh, because yeah. To or done.
3: to avoid the traffic. Yep.
1: Michael Norton, it's great to see you as always.
3: Michael Norton is the Harold M. Brierley Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. His latest book is Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. Up next, we talk to Michael Eric Dyson about his new book, What Truth Sounds Like, RFK, James Baldwin, and Our Unfinished Conversation About Race in America. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston.
1: on tape today replaying some of our favorite radio conversations which includes the one we have with michael eric dyson about his latest book what truth sounds like rfk james baldwin and our unfinished conversation about race in america michael eric dyson thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me pleasure
3: yeah thank you so much for being here so so tell us uh, um, about this meeting that went on uh with rfk tell us what how it ca- happened and what it was
4: Sure. Well, um, Robert Kennedy and James Baldwin had met each other about a year before at a Nobel laureate meeting in um, at the White House. And then um, Mr. Baldwin fired off a fiery telegram uh, after uh, Birmingham with the goon and ghoulish behavior, the goon-like and ghoulish behavior of uh, Bull Connor. And uh, he blamed in part the president and the attorney general for not... Uh, seeing race as a moral issue rather than instead exclusively as a political one. Uh, One thing led to another. Uh, The the Attorney General reached out to Kennedy on the uh, advice also of Dick Gregory. Uh, They met for a half an hour uh, one morning. Uh, Baldwin's plane was late, so uh, Kennedy couldn't meet with him uh, for a substantial uh, amount of time. But he said, look, the next day I'm going to be, tomorrow I'm going to be in New York, Let's meet at my family's uh, apartment and uh, bring some of your friends that you think black people listen to and that you can get together. Well, when you're Jimmy Baldwin, your friends are, (laughs) you know, Harry Belafonte, (laughs) Lena Horne, uh, and Lorraine Hansberry. Yeah, not bad, you know. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, along with Jerome Smith. Uh, Clarence Jones was uh, the lawyer of both Baldwin and Martin Luther King, Jr. He was there. And Jerome Smith. who was a decorated uh, freedom rider who had been beat to within an inch of his life several times. So they they got together and and talked about race in uh, Kennedy's apartment.
1: So before you tell us what uh, uh, met RFK in that meeting, what was RFK's expectation of what the meeting was going to be like, which I assume was not at all what it became?
4: That's right. He wanted to talk about urban issues in America. He had seen the burgeoning, brewing crisis, to mix metaphors, of, um, you know, the black urban center. He was concerned about it. He thought that black people were being seduced by the radical and extremist elements within African-American culture. They were listening to the black Muslims increasingly. And he wanted to find out, A, why they were doing that, B, what they could do to redirect them uh, toward more moderate and therefore liberal um, quarters, And he wanted an explanation about what was going on with the rage in black America. And he didn't want to talk to Martin Luther King Jr. or Whitney Young or Adam Clayton Powell, uh, established political and civil rights leaders uh, in reverse. He wanted to speak to uh, people with their hands and fingers on the pulse of black America. So he convened, uh, he met with Baldwin, and Baldwin suggested these other people. And he wanted to address, and Kenneth Clark, the great Kenneth Clark, Mm -hmm. Uh, the social psychologist, and then the most uh, respected social scientist in America. So he wanted to speak about the urban crisis in black America and how to tamp down on the rage that was brewing.
1: But it was not Kennedy's agenda that controlled in this meeting, Michael Eric Dyson, correct?
4: Not at all. Uh, Kennedy started uh, innocuously enough. He um, talked about the great advances made under his brother's uh, presidency. Let's, let's admit, first of all, it ain't hard to have great advances when nothing was done before. <laughs> so even a little bit looked great, right? But the problem with JFK, John F. Kennedy, the president uh, the president of the United States of America, the brother, older brother of uh, Bobby Kennedy, is that he was ambivalent. And he was, on the one hand, putting on the bench people like Harold Cox, Cox who called black people the N-word from yeah. the bench. He was speaking to Governor Vandiver in Georgia and saying that he was not going to use federal power uh, to intervene and federal, federal authority to intervene on segregation in the South. And on the other hand, he's telling black leaders that he's going to deal with civil rights and, and come up with some legislation. So he was playing both ends against the middle, and it was difficult to imagine that black people would be absolutely grateful for that kind of uh, chicanery. Uh, But still, they were grateful that this president at least acknowledged them and the attorney general was interested in speaking to them. But that uh, conversation soon got derailed when Kennedy was uh, suggesting that they should be grateful and all the good things that were happening and worried about the black Muslims. And then Jerome Smith jumped, piped up. You don't have to worry about the black Muslims. They're not the ones you should be concerned with because they're not going to be involved politically. Uh, They were not then, and largely uh, not now, involved directly with electoral or other forms of politics. And uh, he said, they ain't going to get involved, but you should be concerned about a guy like me, who's a devotee of Gandhi and King, and I'm ready to take up a gun. I am, and when when you see a guy like me take up a gun, then you know it's over. And then from that point on, uh, Lorraine Hansberry jumped in, Baldwin jumped in, and for three hours, uh, Kennedy was hammered with blow after blow, a uh, rage-filled, uh, anger, anger-motivated conversation, but also a demand, uh, a request for seeing race not only as a political matter but as a moral issue as well.
3: Well, you know, when I read about this, uh, I could not, I could not help but think that a, a lot of people would, a lot of white people in that situation w- in 2018 wouldn't get the righteous rage of a lot of african-americans unless they sat down the the same way he did i think this is still true Mm -hmm. isn't it
4: absolutely right um and that's why i spend so much of my time talking about what's going on now using that meeting as a prism onto the contemporary landscape but you're absolutely right how do we know you're right oh boy these black players they keep (laughs) uh disrespecting the flag uh they don't know what? They're, they're talking about injustices rendered to African-American people uh, by unarmed, uh, as unarmed black citizens uh, at the hands of the police. Uh, we can add to that. We can't go to Starbucks and not you know, be harassed and have the police called on us. We can't have a cookout in Oakland. Um, we can't gather in public spaces that white people take for granted. So, no. Uh, many white people still don't know the anger, the rage, the the venom that is directed toward us. And as a result of that, uh, the enormous, uh, if you will, difficulties and burdens we bear uh, for being black in America still today.
1: Can we, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, let's, can we just stay off that meeting for a second before we come to current events? Larry Tai was with us the other day, who obviously has written a great biography of... Uh, rfk and he referred to rfk as clueless on issues of civil rights early on i think you used the word naive my recollection from your book is that immediately after the meeting it wasn't like uh, rfk had an epiphany didn't he leave there and go wiretap and surveil essentially (laughs) all the participants so obviously it wasn't like a light bulb went off right away if i'm right what caused the the conversion i mean was it thinking about this reflecting on what he'd been told what happened
4: what's a white guy to do i mean you beat me up. i gotta go sick the fbi on you bruh i gotta use what's at my disposal you get mad i get even uh, so yeah <laughs> he went out there and he he collected the dossiers of people either he initiated it with um with uh, J. J. Edgar Hoover or yeah. or he continued it, let's be honest. So the reality is, yes, this northern liberal, northern seaboard elite um, sicked the FBI on many of the participants there that day. That's, that's the just compense, the just compensation that many black people get from liberals uh, often who uh, don't have backlash of the right wing, but they get sideswiped from the liberals. Um, but then... After being angry and just venomous, um, RFK calmed down a bit, phoned up a couple of um, of his aides, including Arthur Schlesinger, and he said, Look, you know, maybe if I were black and I came up the way Jerome Smith did, I'd feel the same way he does now. And then he went into a meeting with uh, LBJ shortly after that meeting. So it wasn't one after the other. It was simultaneous. This is how it is, right? We pivot between these different modalities of response. At the same time that he's collecting or getting dossiers collected on those figures, he's also uh, reprimanding publicly uh, LBJ for not having enough black people involved in a committee that he was working on. And then he pushed his brother to see race as the leaders, uh, thinkers and thought leaders and thinkers wanted him, and artists and, and, and activists wanted him to see it as a moral issue, not just a political one. And true enough, in that June, John F. Kennedy emphasized the moral dimensions of race, used his bully pulpit finally in a redemptive fashion, and Robert F. Kennedy himself committed himself for the rest of his life to trying to grapple with the issues of poverty and racial inequality in a much more enlightened and empathetic manner than he had before.
1: We're talking to Michael Dice in his latest. Is what truth sounds like? R.F.K. James Baldwin and our unfinished conversation about race in America.
3: You know, um, you talk about in, in this in this Kennedy point that in the in the Kennedy part when he was J.F.K. was still president about you know people uh, Kennedy was very worried and his people around him were very worried about. Uh, the people that had been in the South, white segregationists, and wanted to get those votes back. And again, I keep coming back to current events, but I wonder if you think that this is similar to what Democrats are talking about now in terms of going after uh, the uh, Trump voters to get them back in the party because they lost them in the, in the Hillary Clinton race. Is this the same sort right. of thing that's going on? Or should, or should Democrats just forget about those people? even some of those who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump.
4: Yeah, do we really want them back? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You're know? the expert. I'm not.
3: I mean, yeah, I, I, right. I, you know, that's a big debate Democrats are having right now, right?
4: Yeah, of course. And, but, but not only that, let's, let's, let's make it accessible to people. Not only are they saying, how do we get them back, they're ignoring the people who stayed. They want the prodigal white voters, but they're denying the child, who, the, the the son who stayed behind. Like, hey, I've been faithful all along. You know, Jesus told that story. A lot of us go like, dang, dude, I didn't mess up. I didn't get on drugs. I didn't go out here and prostitute myself to have to have a fatted cow killed for me to return. Uh, I hope your biblical uh, literacy out there is uh, up to par, if not. <laughs> not mine, but go was ahead. very
3: impressive.
1: Very <laughs> impressive. But
4: but but here's the point that. That we're doing that at the expense of those who are already present. And part of the invitation for those white voters to return is to honor the politics of resentment against the minimal and modest gains of African-Americans and Latinos and uh, African-Americans and Latinos and others who are already a central part of the party. So the Democratic Party is going to have to make up its mind. Are you going to talk about a program of justice and equality for all that all must adhere to white, black, brown, red, yellow and other colors? Or are you going to capitulate at the altar of a concern for uh, understandably of the white working class? But what about the black working class? What about the Latino working class? What about all working classes and the issues they they have? And sometimes. The white working class is in conflict with the black working class. Why? Because the white working class encouraged policies of bigotry and prejudice and exclusion against black and brown people who they didn't want in their unions, pipe-fitter unions, uh, police people, uh, firemen, and the like. So let's not romanticize the issue and let's deal with it straight on. Yes, we want to recruit as many people as possible into the fold, but not at the expense of justice and not at the expense of equality and fairness. We're
3: talking to Michael Eric Dyson. In his new book is What Truth Sounds Like. One more Democratic political question, uh, Michael, and that's about uh, the story that was in the paper just a few days ago talking about how the most loyal uh, voters to the Democratic Party have been African-American women and how so many of them get out there in the Alabama race to vote against Roy Moore, vote uh, vote vote for Doug Jones, and they were very loyal to Hillary Clinton. And yet the Democratic Party around the country is not supporting uh, those black women We have a race In Massachusetts Between Michael Capuano Who's a congressman Great congressman A lot of people Think he's a terrific Progressive and liberal But he's facing A African American woman That's on the Boston City Council And the black caucus uh, John Lewis other What's team. her name? Ayanna Ayanna Presley. Presley, yeah. And uh, yeah, other people right. have sort of said, hey, uh, we're going with Mike Capuano. Uh, she's just an example of many. Appara- uh, there people. are 43
1: black women running for the House of Representatives. One of them has so far gotten the support of the Democratic campaign I congressional mean, caucus. I
3: mean, how
4: tragic. I mean, look at that. Talking about not being grateful, talking about biting the hand that feeds you, talking about exploiting the people who are at your table. And this is what I mean. Going after a white voter who may or may not return to the foe, who, because of uh, concerns about economic inequality or the Constitution or their unconscious bigotry that Donald Trump tapped into or all three simultaneously and many more, the people who are there, who are faithful, who are loyal, can't even get the Democratic Party to support them. Iana Presley is a great candidate and a woman deserving of support from our own party but so many and I I've, I've faced this across the country as I've gone across it uh from the depth and breadth of this uh country the height and so on uh width of it and and this has been a story that has been repeated black people have been exploited now that's no but the tragedy is the 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 Republican party often has pockets of bigotry and prejudice that if they were to get rid of them they could they could really recruit more black people because black people are are usually culturally and morally conservative, even if they're politically progressive. So, so the Democrat, the Republican Party could have a cache of voters who would increase their numbers if, and join their fold if they could tamp down on the bigotry and prejudice and the, ign- the, the ignoring of the plight and predicament of black people.
1: Well, you know, by the way, uh, on that note, one of your favorite people, I think, would uh, follow up your sentence by saying what he said repeatedly, what the hell do you have to lose when he's speaking... <laughs> To black people. What's your reaction when candidate and then President Trump says that, Michael Arc Dyson?
4: Yeah, we got a lot to lose, bruh. There's a lot that we've lost. You put in, you know, uh, Attorney General Sessions. He has turned back the clock on criminal justice for black people. He has been a vicious stab in the heart from an ostensibly objective or at least justice-seeking uh, department that has really been... Uh, haranguing and harassing uh, black people and has been viciously um, hostile uh, to them at the same time. So, yeah, we got a lot to lose. We got a lot to lose in terms of education with Betty DeVos. We got a lot to lose with Ben Carson. I know you're a brain surgeon, and I know you separated twins, but separate yourself from that ignorance that beclouds you at
3: HUD. We're talking to Michael Eric Dyson. His book is What Truth Sounds Like. A couple of things um, uh, in in the book that that interested me with a dreaded local angle, uh, Michael. You mentioned Congressman Joe Kennedy in here and his response to the Republicans, um, and you say that he sounded a lot like his grandfather, uh, RFK. Why is that?
4: Well, he's concerned about the poor person, the little man and little woman out there. He's concerned now extending the trajectory of his grandfather's moral um, arc, if you will. And he's talking about gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual people, trans people. He's talking about people who speak Spanish. He spoke some Spanish that night. So here's a man who's concerned about the other and yeah. who is sensitive to them. And he's got some conservative uh, stirrings and uh, strains as well. But. Here's a man who is open-minded enough to embrace the other, and it sounds an awful lot like his grandfather.
3: You know, I was thinking about how, you know, RFK sits down at this meeting, gets pummeled, and hears a lot about uh, rage at that initial meeting that you base your book on. But I was also thinking that that Joe Kennedy's roommate at Stanford uh, was gay and black. So you're living with somebody 24-7. That certainly would be kind of like not exactly the meeting, but you know what I'm saying? Understanding where somebody else is coming from that may have really impacted his life
4: I mean personal experience it shouldn't have to be personal experience we shouldn't have to have um, relationships with the people that we should have empathy for but it does make a difference and then when you even for people who are who are homophobic themselves and have gay children my God, what you going to do? Hate your kid? What you going to do? Say, so, oh, God meant for you to go to hell. You're going to hell if you get, don't get converted. No, slow down. So, you know, sometimes personal experiences do transform political uh, perspectives.
3: The other thing I wanted to – later in the book you talk about uh, – well, several times, but this p- passage toward the an activist, too, you're talking about uh, Muhammad Ali and saying that he was, of course, a, a, a practicing uh, m- a Muslim believer, and he mm-hmm. showed more of his virtue than a lot of the uh, a Christian nation that turned on him. You can't help wondering what, I mean, I know we have to separate now because the, the, uh, the beliefs and what they're doing is so much different. White evangelicals from black evangelicals. But it is sort of surprising, you just quoted the Bible so well, that the Christian so-called right, the white Christian right, has mm-hmm. kind of lost its biblical way, it would seem, in the Trump presidency. Oh,
4: Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, do they know the Bible? Do they know their Ten Commandments? Jeez. Uh, and they're making every excuse in the book and really outside of it, the holy book, uh, to justify, legitimate, and validate a man whose mendacity, whose sinfulness, whose manifest lack of integrity uh, is a scourge and a bad mark on the presidency. And they have excused him one after another um, <laughs> and not even challenging him on his racism, his sexism, his homophobia, not challenging him on his anti-Americanism because he's trying to reduce the complexity of patriotism to what he likes, uh, and shame on these evangelicals and these religious, uh, religious folk for standing to the side and looking at Donald Trump uh, wreak havoc on this American society and not only being silent but even congratulating him and advocating that he go forward uh, with his agenda.
1: We're talking to Michael Eric Dyson. Michael, can we spend the last couple of minutes on the subtitle of your book, or Unfinished Conversation? Uh, about race i mean marjorie and i talk a lot about it with our listeners here and it seems that in this country we're great at starting these conversations whether it's beer summits or starbucks training for one hundred seventy five thousand people but we just can't get the finishing thing yet and i was talking the other day on a television show about maybe the reason we can't ever finish is because we don't want to is because maybe we're comfortable with the level of racism that exists in this country. I'm not saying people are happy when they see young black men killed when they're walking away from a a, a police uh, person. But is it possible that's why we never get anywhere? Or if I'm wrong, what is the right answer?
4: Yeah, well, clearly people think it's an acceptable price to be paid, that even though they don't like certain dimensions of it and they're uncomfortable and it's bad to speak of and to acknowledge that you are willing to tolerate this, but they clearly are. And uh, there is no sufficient motivation to move beyond the morass of, you know, the, the, the moral miasma to which we've uh, descended, the, the the constant and relentless drumbeat of bigotry and hate and resistance to the other that we hear coming from the White House, Here's a man who stands up every morning to excrete the feces of his moral depravity into a nation he's turned into his psychic commode every day, and that's a bunch of uh, crap. Mm-hmm. So, so the thing is— That's an image. That's an image. Uh, right. Yeah, I hope it stinks to high heaven. <laughs> Thank so, you. so the reality is, yeah, a lot of people are willing to do that because they don't care because they're really not motivated to be concerned. And people get upset. Are you saying that all people who voted for Donald Trump— are racist, that the Republicans are bigots and stuff, I'm saying you're willing to tolerate bigotry and racism as the admission price to the arena of opportunity that you think is provided by a figure who will take pay attention to your tax base and yet taxes us with his base rhetoric and his refusal to acknowledge the humanity of all Americans, including Muslims and Mexicans and African Americans and women and others.
1: So if if there's any hope in you at all or in us at all, I assume it's not a LeBron James with his outspokenness and his honesty who's going to break the logjam, but another RFK, is that it? A white person who is honest about what's going on that helps lead all of us out of the wilderness what gets us there
4: yeah well white folk have to tell the truth have to bear the burden of articulating a serious vision of hope and justice and wrestling with what we know as white privilege i know a lot of white people don't want to hear white privilege oh my god i'm not privileged i'm poorer than you you make more money white privilege ain't got nothing to do with money alone when jim crow was in and white people had the rule, right every uh, white water fountains, black water fountains, black schools, white schools. It didn't mean that every white person was going to get into Harvard. What it meant was that only the people who got into Harvard were white, so that kind of privilege suggests that your group has the possibility to to compete uh, in an unfair game for access and admission in ways that black people were by definition, ruled out. That's what white privilege means. It doesn't mean every white person is privileged. It means the lion's share of privileges that are enjoyed are enjoyed by white brothers and sisters because they have been given a foot up in life. You're born on third base and think you hit a triple. And so white folk get upset. My God, I have to work for mine and and calling black people and brown people lazy. Look, you ain't worked for 300 years. There were black people out here who were enslaved. And built this country, and yet uh, the, meta, the, the the stereotype of laziness that is attached to Mexicans and African Americans and other latinos is, is is pretty ridiculous so yeah, I think it takes a conscientious white brother and sister or sister to step up to be self critical to say we can 't uh, abide this we can we 't have black people only speaking up about police brutality about uh, unarmed black people going down. white people must pay the the price for that must bear the burden for that must tell the truth about that in ways that only white people can because a lot of white people will never listen to a guy like me i don't care how smart they think i am or how eloquent or how funny or how self-deprecating they're not going to hear me but they'll hear some white person who speaks up to tell the truth and who's willing to take other white people to task
3: michael eric
1: dyson we really appreciate your time congratulations on the book
3: Michael Eric Dyson's new book is What Truth Sounds Like, RFK, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America. Up next, we check in with Shakespeare authority Stephen Greenblatt about his new book, Tyrant. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're on tape today replaying some of our favorite conversations, which includes the one we had with Harvard's Stephen Greenblatt about his new book, Tyrant Shakespeare on Politics. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie. Egan. we are broadcasting live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. For every politician, there seems to be a Shakespearean doppelganger. Richard Nixon's might have been Richard the Third, George W. as Henry V, and Donald Trump claims many. He's been compared to Caesar, Hamlet, King Lear, and yes, even Bottom. In his new book, Stephen Greenblatt lays out why we might turn to Shakespeare's plays to make sense of modern-day politicians. It's entitled, Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics. Stephen, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Now, before we start, I want to read an endorsement of this book from the back flap, because it's obviously timely in this brilliant beautifully organized exceedingly readable study of Shakespeare's tyrants and their tyrannies their dreadful narcissistic follies is beautifully written their usurpations and their craziness and their cruelties their arrogant incompetence their paranoid viciousness their falsehoods and their flattery hunger uh, their flattery hunger stephen greenblatt manages to elucidate obliquely our own desperate in shakespeare's words General Woe and that was written by a guy we're going to talk about in an hour Philip uh, Roth who obviously has passed away in the last 24 hours yes
8: I was very sad to hear this I didn't know him and oh you I w- didn't I did not and I was amazed uh, that he very generously uh, offered those words uh, I, I mean I, uh, that feels I, pretty good yeah, I mean I, does it, that it not it felt oh, God. astonishing yeah. one of the
3: great novelists of the 20th yeah, century I mean, and, and
8: someone I had actually read thought about ever since I defended him uh, for Goodbye Columbus to my Aunt Rose who thought it was a disgrace and a shame. <laughs> I think we had the same aunt, actually, Stephen.
3: Yeah. So. Well, uh, congratulations to you for getting that. Congratulations to you to a book. On the other hand, it is so fed into my already Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, it's place. supposed to get you out of your Trump derangement
8: <laughs> well, to make you look back into the past.
3: I mean, I'm reading about Richard Third, which we'll get to in a second, mm-hmm. and thinking... Well, okay, the president hasn't murdered anybody, as far as we know. <laughs> so, but the comparisons. But tell people what what uh, the thesis is. What what you've done with Tyrant Shakespeare uh, Shakespeare on Politics.
8: Well, I should say first off that uh, the name of our current president does mm-hmm. not uh, appear in nope. my book, and that is not only coyness. It's because uh, when I think, and I shouldn't say this to you, that when one is just hit every day by the news cycle, that. Uh, it's disorienting uh, and and this it was disorienting for me uh, and unsettling for me to feel uh, yet another uh, scandal another bomb another outrage another tweet and so forth and you begin to lose actually just any clear sightedness about what's going on so for me i mean i'm an english professor uh, but for me and i think for others sometimes looking away from the current situation not away in the sense of an escape, but just to get that there, this is a big world and a, we have a big past and we can look back and see how other people dealt with situations that were also disorienting uh, and unsettling. And Shakespeare is a genius at them. And he himself learned the virtues of what I call obliquity, looking at an angle at things.
3: And you also make the point that he couldn't, he couldn't in Elizabethan times, he couldn't criticize the current... Uh, yeah. Leadership or no, the monarchy he had his he, ears cut off exactly, so that 's why he went back in a no, very
8: different reason from ours, not because he was overwhelmed by the by the public news cycle, but on the contrary, because it wasn 't there was no democratic pu- social space public space at all in this world, and it was unbelievably dangerous to talk about the present but Look, people want to talk about what's going on in their lives, and he found ways of doing it.
1: So, Stephen Greenblatt, take us into the past a little bit and pick whatever you choose to inform current events uh, from
8: Shakespeare's... Uh, well, you can felon. decide yourself how much they, they inform current events, but oh my God. Shakespeare seemed to think that uh, he started by thinking about how in- desperately impacted party politics started up. Uh, how it was possible for two parties to form that even though they were roughly the same in terms of their access to uh, the goods of society, they couldn't any longer talk to each other. And it was heightened, the situation was heightened in his view by a well-meaning but in his account uh, rather weak leader, a young man in this case. Uh, And out of that he thought what could happen was the rise of, of what he took to be a kind of fraudulent populism. Uh, that was a stalking horse for much more powerful people. I mean, they didn't actually care about the under underclass that they were speaking for, but that would arise, and he thought what would come out of that would be a uh, kind of civil strife that could lead to the rise of So where tyrant. did that
1: most uh, prominently manifest itself in his work?
8: In his account, I mean, he couldn't write about his own time, he could, but he wrote about the preceding century and about the rise of this very weird uh, character, Richard III, mm-hmm. uh, who had the, uh, the right background for... I mean, he was a, uh, an heir uh, to one of the leading aristocrats in his world, uh, but who didn't care any longer about any of the, how should we say, social agreements, the things that you take for granted in the society, who was willing to overturn all of the collective understandings of his world and just do what he needed to do, in his case murderously, to achieve power, but it wasn't through murder. That's the weird thing uh, that Shakespeare was fascinated by his arri- arrival at ex- supreme power. It was through an election. Isn't that strange? Shakespeare lived in a world that wasn't to the world of election. Did
1: you read and- what, what Andrew Sullivan wrote about the Richard III and Trump? You did. Yeah, that obviously. was a, a great idea. piece.
3: But you know, it, um, Richard the Third had a withered hand. You talk about uh, how he twisted this. He was born that way and how he managed to twist this and what happened when he did uh, uh, twist this in the course of his reign.
8: I mean, Shakespeare thought, I don't know whether there's any truth to this as a general principle, and, uh, but he thought that there was a relationship between some kind of troubled or disturbed upbringing, uh, uh, particularly the way in which you were parented, Uh, mothered in this uh, this case and what you are likely to be like later that something about richard's body image um so he thought and the way he was with his mother might have led to the peculiar behavior that he had and particularly and this is again an interesting perception what it means to want to get into everyone's head richard can't you can't stop thinking about him in uh, the, the play Any, None of the characters can stop thinking about him And the audience can't stop After, For 400 years the audience hasn't been able to stop thinking about him He's unbelievably good at Worming his way into your head and staying there And Shakespeare thought it might at least Have something to do with what it was like to be a child in this situation but we don't know. But so is somebody, the Trump I'm sorry. I, I'm
3: sorry but didn't somebody say maybe I'm mistaken that somebody said later on in his life that it wasn't he, he wasn't born with this that this happened later in his life and even though that was a lie a complete lie that that he managed to twist and you people know, believed they, it.
8: They they dug up the skeleton not not so long ago they dug up the skeleton of Richard III was under a parking lot in Leicester in England. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen it uh, on the news. And he did have a very strange yeah spine. So it's quite possible that there was a... a, a, Deformity. Deformity. And Shakespeare didn't think everyone with a deformity would wind up as a tyrannical Mm -hmm. murderer. He thought that Richard used this. uh, And what's fascinating, of course, about Richard is that he thinks, initially, he says in Shakespeare that it's because he can't get women, that he'll need to have power, that that's the substitute. He'll be able to push people around. Yeah. But then he gets women, and he still is like this.
3: But so. you talk about, the, you, Jim mentioned the Andrew Sullivan piece, which was a great piece. It was in New York Magazine, but one of the things he talks about, you didn't talk about this, but but Andrew did, and I thought it made it, a lot of people speculate about Donald Trump's mother and his insecurities and why he always wants to be accepted by the noblesse you know, oblige, as opposed to like, the, you know, came from Queens and all that. The, the idea about how he was kind of a tyrant as a child, you know, Hitting the neighborhood kid with stones and that sort of stuff, and had to be sent off to, to reform school. So he was drawing it, it the, uh, the analogy between a maybe troubled childhood for the president and troubled childhood for Richard the Third, and also the fact that, and you talk about the fact that people around him. Not just Richard the Third, but King Lear, which is the other one. Uh, you know, people knew that King Lear was kind of losing his marbles, and people knew that Richard the Third was losing his marbles and did nothing.
8: In a way, I find this more, to me, more compelling than Shakespeare's speculations about the childhood of Coriolanus or the childhood of Richard the Third, which may or may not be true. I find remarkable in Shakespeare, the, and he repeats this multiple times. Everyone gets it; no one is deceived. I mean, a few. Uh, small children are deceived, but everyone sees what they're getting into. And so then he asks himself, given that, how does it go forward? Well, how, if everyone sees that uh, there's a catastrophic per, uh, leadership in the making, why do people support it? And he's fascinated by the types of people who enable the, the rise to the power of his tyrants. This is uh, not about right now. This is about 400 years ago. Uh,
1: just happens that's the to most, have some. <laughs> that's the most interesting part of your book. The chapter, by the way, is called "Enablers." Let me read the opening few sentences, and then you can tell us all the different types and that you describe here, or that Shakespeare does. But you retell. Richard's villainy is readily apparent to almost everyone. There's no deep secret about his cynicism, cruelty, and treacherousness. No glimpse of anything redeemable in him, and no reason to believe that he could ever govern the country effectively. The question, as you just said, the play explores then is how such a person person actually attained. The English throne. and I think you break it down into five or six different subclasses of people. Talk about some of them.
8: And those classes, really, this is just my way of extrapolating from how sweet, very, very vivid characters that Shakespeare depicts. Mm-hmm. It's not sociological categories, mm-hmm. it's characters. So there are, as they say, there are some who are simply fooled, but not many. Uh, and then there are some who are frightened. Uh, they don 't don 't they, don't st- they can 't stand up to a bully uh, he, he tells them he 's going to do something and they panic and There are quite a few people like that he thinks but then there are there 's a different category of people who are drawn to normalize what 's not normal and I think Shakespeare thought that was a very strong temptation. something is going on that 's every that 's not normal, but you your mind as it were repairs the damage you think no, finally. You'll forget the, uh, the trouble. It'll be okay. It'll be normal. And that's, a he thinks, a very risky category. And then he thought there are people who basically trust the long-term continuation of, a, of the way things are. Uh, that things are like this, and there'll be rocky times, but they'll, the institutions will hold. They've lasted a long time in, England, in Shakespeare's world, and they people think they'll last forever, they sort of forget that actually nothing lasts forever. Things actually that you think are there permanently are not. Oh, and then, the there way, are, and then there's a whole lot just to say that there's another set of categories of a more familiar kind I said from our new cycle of people who will think that they'll be able to take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, as there were people, of course, when in the 1930s who thought, who got the, what Hitler was like, but thought they could take advantage of this thing. Yeah. They'll, they'll, uh, uh, they'll be able along with those people who simply carry out orders when anyone orders them to do that, they'll be able to profit from this.
1: We're talking uh, to Stephen Greenblatt. That's his voice. Uh, his latest is Tyrant Shakespeare and Politics. When did you start, I assume it was during a candidacy, not during a presidency. When did you start thinking about these connections between what's dear to your heart, Shakespeare, and uh, the uh, soon-to-become president of the United States. Well, I
8: sort of, of course, thought about the larger issues all my life, or at least mm-hmm. all my adult life, but it is the case that, that uh, over the summer... Of 2016? The, uh, yeah, before the election, partly I, I go back and forth to Vermont a lot. I noticed innumerable signs for Bernie and not a single sign for Hillary. And then when Bernie finally left... There were no more Hillary signs. No one replaced their Bernie signs with Hillary signs. And I thought, ooh, this is alarming. And then I began to talk to people who said they were going to vote for Jill Stein. They couldn't vote for Hillary. She wasn't far enough for this. She didn't have that. And I thought, really? Again? I mean, the Ralph Nader phenomenon, again, we're going to do it? And so I did. I began to have uh, uh, unpleasant thoughts.
1: Well, you know, we've told the story about 100 times, but you haven't heard it any of the 100 times. We spent, uh, always spend the week before... Marjorie and I do, the week before uh, the primary vote in New Hampshire, presidential primary in New Hampshire. And we've told listeners how many people with whom we spoke who said they were undecided. And the obvious question would be, who are you undecided between? And the answer almost always was between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, meaning sort of is the. And so where does that take you when you hear that from somebody? Where does that take you? In Shakespearean terms. Well, it
8: took me if, if, t- took me in the immediate to want to shake people and say, the world wasn't invented last night. Look back. There's a lot of prior experience that should m- warn us against the feelings that you're having the, the, because it's actually... Scary. The outcome can be much more frightening than you think it's going to be.
3: Well, you know, Jim just mentioned the, the and you just, uh, he just referenced the thing about the enablers, and you just described what these people were. I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, but I know you talk about, uh, you know, King Lear, and everybody remembers King Lear he was old and he kind of lost his marbles, and he wanted his three daughters to tell him how much they loved him, and, and Cordelia didn't, wasn't, yes. you know, she wasn't sucking up to him, for lack of a better word, like the two sisters were. But there was a guy, um, the Earl of Kent, that, that I think did try to stand he did. up. He did, And how did that turn out for the it, Earl of Kent?
8: <laughs> it didn't turn out well. Uh, he is is uh, banished, exiled. Uh, he tries to do it because he served King Lear all his life. He believes in Lear. He cares about him. But he also cares about the institution and the country that Lear uh, is running. And Shakespeare has multiple figures of this kind in the play who stand up because they're servants. We call them civil servants, but the, uh, the, uh, they're servants to the people in power, including an amazing, in a way, the most amazing moment in the play is a servant to the Earl of Cornwall, who is running the country at that point, Lear having retired. And the Earl of Cornwall is torturing someone who is accused of treason, who is actually treasonous, in fact. Uh, and the servant can't stand to see his master torture uh, this person. And he says, I've served you all my life, but never service better service have I done you now when I tell you, stop, hold your hand. And he's killed for doing it, but he cannot stand to watch. Of course, this was at a time in which now we all understand that, it's, that no, no civilized society tortures anybody yeah. and that you would never appoint a torturer uh, to the head of a, of a institution. But, the, the, but in those days, this could happen. And, and the servant stands up and says, no.
3: Well, you know what else I was fascinated by, too, and I, and I have gotten carried away with the Trump comparisons, I can't help it, you know, the three daughters, and everyone always talks about uh, Donald Trump and Ivanka and how he adores his, his daughter and she's his favorite child and all this kind of stuff, but of course you have the, the King Lear analogy where his favorite child was Cordelia, who wouldn't suck up, and... Um, How'd things go for her?
8: Well, they went badly. Altruism in general uh, doesn't necessarily produce uh, a happy outcome in Shakespeare, but he believes in it. I mean, Shakespeare sees, in the case of King Lear, let's put the contemporary situation really aside, uh, Shakespeare thinks that there's something disturbing, creepy about the relationship between the king and his two daughters, who speak to him in quasi-erotic terms about their relationship. And Cordelia refuses to do it. She says, I love you according to my bond. No more, no less. Let's not uh, transgress any further. And and she is banished. She ends up ultimately dead. Uh, But what's remarkable in this case is that, again, everyone sees that something is wrong with the ruler that he's actually behaving irrationally, perversely, uh, rashly. And it's very difficult in that si- situation, even for very good people, to stop what's going on. Speaking of things. erotic
1: terms, did either of you hear the Howard Stern interview with uh, with David Letterman about uh, the discussion about Ivanka with Citizen Trump when Trump was uh, on the show? If you haven't, people listening should go listen to Stern retell it. When did you get this, uh, you know, the re- when I'm looking at you, uh, Stephen, and obviously uh, you are at the top of your game, I barely showed up at college for my first two years, and I had a <laughs> professor by the name of Fry, and I can't remember his first name, and I signed up for Shakespeare, because I thought it would be easy.
8: Northrop Fry?
1: I don't remember. His first. But Boy. I'll have to say, one of the greatest semesters in my whole life, and unfortunately it didn't change me, like, your epiphany changed you. When did you have your epiphany, or...
8: How did this all happen? I I had um, a slow epiphany, if there is such a thing. That is to say, I I had a marvelous high school teacher whom I adored and who was a brilliant teacher. And I did that is the beginning of a lifelong. What love. was the first play? You wrote? King Lear, uh-huh. in fact, uh, which is a very peculiar play to teach to to seventeen year olds, sixteen year olds, whatever I was. Uh, but he was a wonderful teacher and who a teacher who acknowledged that he didn't understand things, which I had never heard before. Uh, from any of my teachers. But then I, I went my way, and I became interested in lots of other things. Uh, and uh, eventually, when I found my way into my profession, uh, I was working on other things, on Sir Walter Raleigh, on the, the, uh, the, the discovery of the new world, and so forth and so on. And only slowly got drawn into the orbit of...
1: What drew you back? Think, By the way, I, it was Roland Fry. One of my co-workers well, I, uh, I looked it up.
8: It was Roland yeah. Fry. What, what drew you back, if I may? Well, what drew me back in a sense is what's already what's still going on here. Uh, what drew me back in the 1970s uh, was the eerie way in which the things I was studying from the past, in this case, the burning of villages in Sierra Leone and Africa by English colonists and so forth, seemed disturbingly, unsettlingly. Resonant with what was going on in the present, I'm thinking of the burning of the, of the Vietnamese villages by mm-hmm. those Zippo lighters. This is from my generation, and I began to think that, the, that what I had been taught, which was, to put aside your the present moment and plunge only into the past without reference to anything that's going on in your world, was actually a way of killing, literature, not awakening it, and that what what one. I could only really understand the past if I also brought the present myself fully into the past, not to collapse the two of them to each other, but to shine Mm -hmm. a light from the past on, uh, from the present onto the past and from the past onto the present. And that's, uh, Shakespeare is great not because he's relevant. Shakespeare is relevant because he's great. Uh, And the greatness means that you can. Go back there and find things that matter.
3: Well, the understanding of human nature is just yeah. unbelievable. But in the what's the what's the what's the cliche Lamia I always use? Those who don't know their history are doomed yeah. to repeat it, or something like that. Yeah, I think a lot of us don't know our history, including myself. I should know more, too. But I want to ask you something. I know you didn't mention uh, – by the way, we're talking with Stephen Greenblatt. The terrific book is Tyrant, Shakespeare and Politics. You didn't mention Donald Trump and all this, but obviously you've thought about him and his presidency. And it it does seem that because we do forget our history, so many of us, you're drawing some pretty frightening parallels, at least in the case of Richard III, between – Something that did happen a long time ago, but but the, the kind of enabling that went on, and the fact that people knew that there was something wrong there and and uh, I mean he was finally defeated, uh, but it took a war uh, or a bat- big battle so what do you th- what do you think about the, the the present situation, the institutions of the United States of America that we keep thinking are going to save us well maybe what I'll,
8: what I can say, Marjorie, is that is that um, especially because the the president uh, often feels that he doesn't get adequate credit for all of the things he's doing for the country and for the world, that in this case we can say that uh, Donald Trump is doing his bit to make Shakespeare great again. (laughs) Uh, And he's doing so by by making it possible to see uh, things in Shakespeare that one wouldn't necessarily have seen. So take... Uh, an example from late in Shakespeare's life, from a play that, that lots of people don't know, uh, the R- Roman play Coriolanus, The Last yes. Tragedy he Ever Wrote. And that's a play fundamentally about how very ordinary, modest politicians uh, who represent the popular party against the elite party, how they manage finally to, to stop the rise to tyrannical power of a terrifying figure, and they do so in a way that's not typical, how should we say, of a, of a play, of a, of a tragedy. They do so by insisting on the, the rules, on the legal rules of, uh, that must be observed, and they do so in, in so cleverly and so powerfully that they finally uh, make the, uh, the terrifying figure blow up.
3: Stephen Greenblatt is a professor of the humanities at Harvard University. His new book is Tyrant. Shakespeare on politics. Up next, Cy Montgomery is here to sing the praises of the hyena. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Today we're on tape replaying some of our favorite discussions, which included the one we had with Simon Montgomery about her latest book. It's called The Hyena Scientist. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan broadcasting from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library for another hour today. Hyenas are no laughing matter. In her latest book, and by the way, it is totally beautiful in addition to everything else, Cy Montgomery and Nick Bishop set the record straight about one of the most hated and misunderstood mammals. It turns out they're brave, they're shrewd, they're highly sociable, and are among the most formidable, carnivore, formidable carnivores in Africa. The book is entitled Hyena Scientists." You know, before I introduce Cy, we should play a little clip. It's from The Lion King that all of us got these misconceptions. Here's Zazu, Simba, and Nala accidentally wandering into the hyena's den.
0: Do you know what we do to kings who step out of their kingdom? Pugh, you can't do anything to me. Uh, technically, they can.
7: We are on their land. But, Zazu, you told me they're nothing but slobbering, mangy, stupid vultures. Fixed day on the Oopid's Day. Will oh, you call it Oopid's Day? Bye bye bye. Oh, look at the sun. Mm-hmm. It's time to go. What's the hurry? We'd love you to stick around for dinner. Yeah, we could have whatever's lying around.
0: Wait, 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 I got one, I got one.
7: Make
2: mine a cub sandwich. What would you think?
1: I think that was Whoopi Goldberg. I'm not sure. I think it was. Cy Montgomery is joining us. She's a journalist, naturalist, and a BPR contributor. Here to set the record straight. Cy, congratulations on yet another beautiful book.
0: No, oh, thank you so much.
3: Yeah, it, it is a gorgeous book, and, and kudos to the photographer N.I.C. Bishop. The pictures of the close-up uh, of these animals are just incredible. But, but Cy, um, tell us about, um, well, before we get to all the misconceptions about hyenas, and I had many myself, tell us about this, this journey you took with this woman that has spent three decades unbelievable. Uh, studying hyenas. Kay Holkamp.
0: Yeah, she is great, and her team was great. They work in Maasai Mara, which is in Kenya, and it's part of the Serengeti ecosystem. It's one of the the richest, most beautiful savanna ecosystems in Africa. And it's where she's been working for three decades to study some of the largest hyena clans that have ever been recorded, Um, clans of like a hundred and thirty animals and she knows every single animal there by sight by name and their whole lineage back in some cases to their great grandmothers so she knows these animals extremely well and it's like watching a soap opera when you're when you're working with her but we had the most dramatic time there at one point our camp was nearly washed away we were ready to bug out Last year, I mean, the year before we came, um, camp was almost destroyed by a flood, and it looked like this was happening again while we were there. We we're able to witness some incredible dramas, including a clan war and a border patrol. We got to, to dart one of the hyenas, which they do to draw blood and do measurements, and I got to have a live hyena lie in my lap. Oh, my God. So it was a fantastic trip. I think you you two would have both liked it very well, much. Well,
1: one of us would have. The other one would have <laughs> been scared to death, as you well know. And by the way, you describe in the book that, that darting, to use the word that you used a minute ago, this uh, Kay camp is doing it in a much more humane way, if that's the proper word, as compared to how things were done in the past. But before we get to the hyenas specifically uh, their Cy, when I read about somebody like her, and you did a beautiful job not just describing her path, if you want to share a part of that, but also you talked about each of her coworkers. What is it, because you've known a lot of people like this, for someone to decide to spend essentially half their life studying one set of animals in a faraway place is, is something that is not in most of us. What is in people like Kay Holkamp that allow them to be able to do this kind of thing?
0: Well, I think it starts with curiosity. You know, there are so many mysteries about a particular animal, and that's what gets you into the field. But she initially envisioned about a three-year study, and this Mm -hmm. is very similar to Jane Goodall when she went into the field in 1960 to study the chimpanzees of Gombe. She thought maybe a couple of years. But what happens is you fall in love with them. The mysteries deepen. Everything you see... Every question you ask that starts to get an answer presents another ten even more fascinating questions. And you care about these individual animals. And I think it's that. It's that you have a relationship with them. And who knows how they feel about you, but you care about them. They seduce you, and you fall in love.
1: But, you know, you that's one of the things uh, that I was curious about, is you mentioned that in your book... Uh, uh, the hyena scientist, that over time, the hyenas that she studied became less scared of her and her coworkers, and they were able to drive much closer without a reaction from the hyenas. But they were never able to get as close as, for example, as you've described to us, you've gotten to, I don't mean after they've had a dart shot into them. There is right, that still does a, help. <laughs> there is still a divide between the hyena and this woman that, can't be crossed. Is, is that not true?
0: I, th- I think, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a reason for that. I mean, I, I have seen um, video of people and read um, about people who have raised hyenas from cubs. Mm-hmm. And they're able to pet them and the hyenas will lick them, etc., etc. But I also heard from Kay about a woman who had raised a hyena from a cub and this animal was in captivity and the animal was giving birth, which is a very painful process, even more so than us, for anatomical reasons we can get into. But the woman was petting the hyena through a fence to comfort her in her labor, and the hyena turned around and bit her hand in half, and she had to cut off her big toe to sew to the stump of her hand because they couldn't reattach her thumb. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, they, I mean, these, these guys are just capable of doing such damage to you that I think for Kay, in order to do her job, she doesn't need to take that that kind of, of risk. However, interestingly, there is another guy who studied the same species of hyena in Ethiopia. And at this site in Ethiopia, you can be a drunk passed out in the street and hyenas will not eat your face off, which is not something you would want to try <laughs> anywhere else. In that particular area... That particular hyena culture, the hyenas do not bother the people. And that's really, really interesting.
3: Well, like, I Army, mean, that brings us to some of the misconceptions that they're mostly scavengers and that they would be running around ready to eat the face off some poor passed out person in the street. Or the or think about them um, digging up bones.
0: Right. That, that, that's one of the bad Things. I mean, and they they roll in vomit. But then, who doesn't, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. the
1: same thing.
0: So you know they 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 um, they do do animal things. But Kay actually has been able to determine that between sixty to ninety five percent of the stuff that hyenas eat is animals they killed themselves. They were not scavenged. They were not stolen from another quote-unquote real predator like a lion. In fact, it's much more often the other way around, that lions are stealing from the hyenas.
1: You know, one of the most inter- there are a lot of interesting things I learned from your book, but one is uh, the females run the show. It, it, in the mammal world, is that, uh, first of all, describe that to us if you would, but is that... A -a one-of-a-kind thing or are there other mammals where the females are totally in charge
0: well there are there are other animals that live in matriarchal kinds of societies but these guys are or these ladies are unique in that it is such a rigid hierarchy the females are larger than the males by about 10 percent every single female outranks every single male and wow. what's even more surprising is that because the the infants are with their mother every infant outranks every male wow and we saw this and this was so amazing we were sitting in the car with with K and we saw a fairly high ranking for a male male come up to two little babies and he did this gesture which is called an open mouth appeasement which is almost like bowing before the queen and these two little babies chased him off (laughs) it was amazing to see they have a really rigid hierarchy and from the moment you are born you know what your place is in that in that hierarchy and people who check them out to
1: begin with think these animals are hermaphrodites is that not right, right
0: right well this is because of their bizarre anatomy if you check their undercarriage everybody looks like a male complete with all the equipment. They do? And the first people who collected them for zoo specimens were told to get a male and a female, and they just kept getting males. And they were saying, man, I, I just can't seem to find a female, until one of their so-called males gave birth in front of them through oh my this appendage, which was like giving birth through a soda straw. I mean, giving birth is hard enough if you're a mammal, um, through the usual situation, but These guys, they actually, you know, they they tear open when they give birth. It's a really painful and dangerous process. And
1: do they survive
0: the birthing? Some of them die. Um, Sometimes the cubs will suffocate as, as they're trying to get born. It's a real difficult thing, which to me and to Kay says that looking like a male, is worth a big price to these animals. Otherwise, you wouldn't have this strange, kind of dangerous-to-the-mother situation.
3: And do you know, w- and if the mother dies in childbirth, what happens to the cub? Oh, that's the end of the cub. That's the end of the cub. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Simon Montgomery, a fantastic a book about hyenas. The Hyena Scientist, it's called. Uh, and It's by Simon Montgomery. The photographs, as I said before, by Nick Bishop. Um, so... They're also much smarter than
0: I think we thought they were. Yeah. And they're, they're so cool. They are really like primates in their smarts. You know, they're really more like monkeys and apes than uh-huh. they are like dogs or cats. Everyone thinks hyenas are dogs, but they are not really even very closely related to dogs. They're more closely related to cats, but they're even more closely related to mongooses, and they aren't even all that closely related to mongooses. They're their own tribe. And when you
3: say that they're smarter, it, how do we know that? What, what, what can they do? I mean, can they go oh, get, they can, get
0: you your slippers or what can they yeah, do? They get your slippers
1: and the paper while they're out there.
0: Yeah, that's right. And then they'll take your nose off your face while yeah. you're sleeping. Um, no, they, they can they can figure out puzzles kind of like an octopus. Mm-hmm. Um, they keep in their heads who's who. I mean, we know that they know exactly who where their rank is. Yeah. Um, they hunt cooperatively. They have a ton of of different postures and vocalizations, some of which Kay is still trying to figure out. And their intelligence is a kind of intelligence that we can understand. Most smart animals, like humans and whales and um, parrots uh, and chimpanzees, they live in large groups, and it's a, a kind of social intelligence that we appreciate. Their intelligence is very much like the kind of intelligence that we value in human beings.
1: You know, Simon Gummer, you mentioned the vocalization a minute ago, and at the beginning of this discussion with you, I played a little bit of sound from The Lion King, which is where most of us sadly got our information about (laughs) hyenas. But the other thing that most of us know about hyenas, which is not much, is this absolutely frightening sound they make. We have a little piece of hyenas. I don't know what the verb is. Cackling, laughing, whatever they do. Here here are hyenas. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that sounds like jack nicholson actually Now, but you know that is part of the reason i, I think why they're so scared what are they but doing that's not
0: a laugh though right well what is it right what, right what are they doing? it sounds like they're giggling in an yeah. evil way or cackling like they witches they but they they make that sound when they're nervous when they're afraid someone oh, really? is going to steal their kill and one of the great sounds that they make, the sound that you're most likely to hear at night, is their oh-whoop, which goes like, whoop, whoop, whoop. And this is the night that, that, that you love to hear as you lie in your tent. And what are they saying? Go to sleep to it. What, what's that's, the message? That's saying, you know, oh, my hyena friend, here I am. Oh, man. Yeah, it's lovely. So it's like
1: a mating thing? Is that what it is? Or? Well,
0: no, no. Um, it's it's it, it, you're calling out to your to your clan to I'm your, to your group. It's it's like wolves howling, I guess. Um, it's to let everyone know where you are. You know, si,
1: not only do I—we're talking to Simon. Not only do I admire your your talent and all you've done, but what your experiences. Are, can you go back to the first thing you told us when you had this un, unconscious because it had been shot with a dart hyena lying across your lap? What was that? What that, What was that like?
0: Well, I got to tell you, it it was thrilling, and it got more thrilling very quickly. This guy—he um, was a young guy, a little over. His name was McDonald's because his mother was Burger and everyone in that, um all the siblings were named after fast I read that. That was great. Anyway, so McDonald's was started so that they could um, collect blood and do measurements and all this kind of stuff, but when you take them away to be released and recover from the the medicine that's knocked them out, you've got to take them somewhere where there are no rival clans of hyenas that'll beat him up, where there's no lions who will instantly kill him, and where he's not going to wander off and get into a pool of water and drown. So Mm-hmm. It's very specific places where you want to take. Well, anyway, Kay had this great. Place in mind, but it was a 20 minute drive over rutted roads to get to it. Mm -hmm. So I got to hold him on my lap, his great big, like 18 pound head on my lap as we're going over these rutted roads. And, you know, when you hit a bump like that, your head is going bam, 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 you know. And how do you wake someone up when they've passed out? Well, you slap them on the face. So this poor hyena, you know, he's been darted and Someone's essentially s- slapping him around, and sure enough, after a few minutes, his eyes are, you are open. Me. His no, his head is moving around. He's opening his jaws, and I'm oh thinking this might not be good.
1: Yeah, I'd and
0: that. Um, I'm thinking, you know, poor hyena. He 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 doesn't want to wake up in the middle of nowhere in a car with right. a person. Uh, anyone would be terrified. Um, well. I, I wouldn't particularly like it myself. And what's he going to do to me in this enclosed space? <laughs> so um, actually, at, at a couple of points, we stopped, and, and Kay got out of the front and checked on him, to made sure he was okay. And another person, Benson, super, super guy, sci guy, actually, who's learning to be a researcher himself, helped me hold his head so that it wouldn't, Bump and oh we God. got him successfully moved to a safe place where he could wake up, but man, it was great to be that close to a hyena Well some able to stroke
3: him you you mentioned in your book that the hyena that whose lap has <laughs> on your lap that their jaws are so strong that they can crush bones and oh, yeah the and they can bu- eat them yeah, e- eat them. <laughs> And, that, and that, But when they were um, in a, a certain part of Africa where there were no hyenas for a while, uh, they had, their, their ranks had been depleted. What happened? It was a disaster.
0: Yeah. And whenever you wipe out just about anybody, but certainly when you start wiping out predators, you screw everything up all the way down to the organisms in the soil. Because if you get too many herbivores, they eat all the grass away. Yeah, yeah. The grass holds the soil in place. The soil washes into the rivers. Now your fish are dying. I mean, everything just goes to hell in a handbasket. And do they so. and, and, and do they really eat the skeletons? Do they do that too? Oh, yeah. In fact, one source I read now, I'm not sure if Kay agrees with this, but I read one source who said that hyenas may be the reason where, uh, that explains why we have so few fossils of early hominids, they may have their bones may have been eaten by hyenas because they will chew and digest and excrete the bones of everybody.
1: You know, before you go, si Montgomery, I, I know that you've come across this also since I get whatever it is, October, and we've been talking uh, Harvey Weinstein almost uh, nonstop as the Me Too movement grows. You've read these uh, many an account which literally compare... Weinstein to a hyena, which I hadn't thought about until a minute ago. What's your reaction to that, if I may?
0: Well, perhaps Harvey Weinstein does roll in vomit or dig up dead people and eat them, but um, hyenas do not share with him a uh, delight in molesting females because the equipment on the you know the underside of hyenas prevents any kind of rape. You cannot. You just can't do it. And the females are larger than the males and will just beat the crap out of the male. So um, if he had been a hyena, he wouldn't have even thought about molesting those women.
1: Oh, we can only wish. Hey, Simon Gomer, as always, the book is spectacular. Congratulations on it. It's great to talk to you.
3: Simon Gomery is a journalist, naturalist, and a BPR contributor. Her latest book is The Hyena Scientist. Up next... We're joined by actor, comedian, and writer John Hodgman. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Today, we're on tape replaying some of our favorite discussions, which included the one we had with John Hodgman about his book, Vacation Land, True Stories from Painful Beaches. We're joined by Jonathan Hodgman who either with brilliant deliberation or chance has been uh, a part of a major cultural moments from The Daily Show to the famous Mac ads where he upstages Justin Long as the hapless PC to anticipating fake news, the books like The Areas of My Expertise and for possessing a mustache, which we're going to talk about, or maybe it possesses him only to be rivaled by Ty Cobbs. Not that Ty Cobb, the other Ty Cobb. His latest book is called Vacation Land, True Stories of Painful Beaches. It's now out in paperback. When you uh, hear the title vacation land you may one may think incorrectly this is like a travel log kind of thing from one like maybe Orient Express kind of thing mm-hmm. some look, but it's really a little narrower than that, is that it, a fair, can you describe the it, narrow reach it's, more of or this? Or less,
9: it's more or less a, a, a short journey that, a very short journey that many of your listeners may be familiar with from Massachusetts mm-hmm. to Maine I love that journey I, a, I grew up uh, here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts you did and my book covers Three different, uh, you know, I, you, you can look at me, and if you can't look at me on the radio, you can hear it. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I, I've been a weird, asthmatic, only child nerd, <laughs> citified boy since birth, growing mm-hmm. up in Brookline, Massachusetts. And the book covers my rather awkward wanderings through three wildernesses where I do not belong. First, the, the wilderness of rural western Massachusetts, where I spent a lot of my mm-hmm. youth and young adulthood. Uh, And then, uh, more recently, the painful beaches of coastal Maine, where my wife has instructed me I will accept my death. I don't know when yet. And then the metaphoric wilderness of middle age that sort of connects those two things. Um,
1: You know, one of the things you write about, which I was thrilled, we've talked, we've been on the air about 20 years together in different uh, settings. And we I,
9: I, I hate to disagree. Yes. This is the first time I've met you. Oh, I'm not the, Thank you. You might be having some kind of fugue exactly. moment. Yeah, no. Now,
1: and we have spoken, I would say maybe 50 times about the mustache in America life. Yes. American life. Now you have not just the you have a whole experience.
9: Unfortunately, I have a whole facial hair array. Now, but you've written yeah. about the mustache And our thesis. I, in, it would be unfair to call it a beard. That would be unfair to actual beard. Oh, I okay. think that's true,
1: but we yeah. have we have hypothesized there in on prior shows that people cannot name one American in our history who was to be trusted who had a mustache. Do you find that to be overly broad? What about um, Tom Selleck? I'd have dinner with Tom Selleck. Do you not trust Tom Selleck? Do you not think a standalone mustache mustache is an odd sort of phenomenon well you this know I, not...
9: I opened my book with an apology mm-hmm. for my facial I know hair that. and uh, i would selected a passage to read about it but i could just tell it to you because well, this you book, could do either. Read this book started as a as a stand up comedy show mm-hmm. and so i've and i've often apologized for my beard and mustache I, I can't people ask me why did you grow your facial array and most of those people are my wife and i <laughs> i really have no answer for them other than to say i'm sorry the, mu- the mustache started first that goes back to about 2011 and it's as lovely as a mustache can be Uh, which is to say, baseline disgusting. And the reason, I I grew up for the same reason all weird dads grow mustaches when they hit their 40s, which is that it's an evolutionary signal to the world that says, I'm all done. It's It's a biological signal to mating people saying, no thank you. I've had children. My DNA is out in the world. I no longer deserve physical affection. It's time for me to focus on my new weird dad hobbies, like researching world wars and bridges, and watching broadcast television, and crying at the commercials. And writing that memoir, I've always meant to write, which is what I did. But the beard happened later and was more mysterious, and I couldn't quite i couldn't quite put my finger on why I had grown it. Uh, people who are listening on the radio need to understand just how terrible this beard is. No, it's, it is I, I have a worse one. No, it's not terrible. It's thin. It's patchy. It's asymmetrical. I have weird bald patches. You do have spaces. That's yeah, yeah. Things don't connect. It's
3: multicolored. It
9: looks like I got salt and pepper ants crawling up and down my cheeks. It's not yeah. It's not very attractive, but I think that men... Uh, who are clean-shaven, who've never grown a beard, by the time they start getting older, they really want to grow, and they need to see who the secret bearded man is who is living inside of them, with the hope that that secret bearded man is going to lead them with some wisdom through the years to come. Now, I did not expect that the secret bearded man living inside of me was, I guess, the part-time IT guy for the Duck Dynasty, <laughs> or if I'm kind to myself, the bookkeeper for the Church of Satan. But that's, that's who I am, I
1: guess. We're talking to Jonathan Hodgman, a local kid made good. I'm uh, going to stop you right there. His just, just John. Just, just John. John, John, just John. Hodgman. John. Just, we, Jonathan Hodgman. Look at the cover your, what does your cover of your book say?
9: John. John, Oops. John John, does. Hodge. thank you. That's, fine. That's John Hodge.
3: Well, well, maybe we should say John from Brooklyn. I have a John lot of rivalries
9: Brooklyn? with John. You go to yeah. Brooklyn high? Too? I did. Yes. Really? I mean, class of 1989. Like I was well educated and liked by all my peers. Yeah. And you know, beaches. All of her kids went to Brooklyn. We were just yeah. discussing
3: this. We were discussing this. I'm a Brooklyn transplant, but it's a very pla- good place to send your kids to school. So, you know, you are talking about the uh, vacation land and the true stories from painful beaches. I mean, you uh, uh, have a very interesting story about the rules of the road, as it were, or the rules of the beach or the rules of the neighbors in Maine that I thought you could share with some of our listeners who may not know about the... Yeah,
9: Maine is a a newer experience for Mm -hmm. me. You know, uh, uh, the book takes its title from Vacation Land, the nickname for the state of Maine that you see on the sign Mm -hmm. as you're driving across the bridge over the river that I will not name because every time I try to pronounce it, someone tells me I'm wrong. Piscataqua, right? I don't know. Piscataqua, I think. I don't know. And vacation land as a motto for Maine always struck me as a a cruel joke because why would you you go to a beach where the water is uh, made of hate and wants to kill you and the minute you go in there every cell in your body screams why are you doing this to me and then you jump up on the beach that offers no refuge because the beaches are made of rocks and shells that are sharp as knives. It is a, a painful place to take a vacation and even though scientists have done research and have found other beaches down south where the sand is soft and warm and the water is welcoming and makes you believe that you deserve happiness and pleasure in life, people still go to Maine all the time, my wife being one of them. It's the place that is the most important. She Mm -hmm. loves it more than any other place or, frankly, person on earth. Mm -hmm. And so in the past few years, I've been dragged up there for increasingly longer periods of time, and I've had to come, come reckon with why I'm there.
3: So you describe your... <clears throat> a certain kind of hostility up there, though. If you, yeah. if you, for, and, and, yes. like what? Well,
9: for example, there's a place that I'm I can never go back into again since I wrote my book called Perry's Nuthouse in Belfast, Maine, right there on Route One. Someone in the audience is giving me a thumbs up. I'm sorry, ma'am, thumbs down. <laughs> no, it's a fine. It's a, it's an institution, and they mm-hmm. and they sell nuts and they sell fudge. And if that's the kind of thing you like, you should go there. But one time we were there. And there was a sign on the door, handwritten in the angriest Sharpie I've ever seen, and it just said, no bathroom. And that was a lie, obviously. It's a building. They have a bathroom there. Arguably, that's why the place was built in 1926, to lure travelers from Boston (laughs) in to use the bathroom and buy some fudge on their way to Bar Harbor or wherever they were going. And it struck me that what it really should have said, the sign, to be honest, should have said, yes, we have a bathroom, but you can't use it. Because we hate you. Because we live here all the time, not just the summer. And we endure 10 months of cold and darkness waiting for you to arrive. And when you arrive, you come up with complaints and requests for lobster rolls and housekeeping and fudge. And yes, we sell you these things voluntarily, because we need to keep the lights on during the winter. But it's hard not to resent you, because this, after all, is our summer too, and you're making us work. So no, you can't, this is still the sign, you understand? Yes. No, you cannot use the bathroom. We By wouldn't. the way,
1: do you know why they didn't, actually, they were contemplating adopting that? Yeah. But they said Starbucks is already using it, so they don't <laughs> need to it. You know, when you read it, we're talking to John Hodgman, his latest book, which I think is wild Funny is called you. Vacation Land. It's, it's True story from Painful Beaches. <laughs> when you open the New York Times and nervously I assume, and the first line you read is Vacation Line, Vacation Land is a pointless little book. Yes. What does it feel like in your body? Terrible. D- but, he, <laughs> but, but then the, But then you read on they go on to say yeah. pointless little books are important. And useful, and we need pointless little books. And they go on to mention people like Thurber, Bennett Cerf, who a lot of people listening yeah. may not recall, but I remember on television. When I was a kid. So pointless is in, I guess. Well, I mean, those the, those
9: are great storytellers. That it is embarrassingly flattering for me to be compared to. But yeah, I mean, I think that there, everyone has stories to tell, and I think that there is room and need for books that just tell a, a point of view. And the one, the the, the essayist that I. It's aspire to the greatest, uh, or the most, I should say, is uh, part-time Maine resident uh, E.B. White, mm. who oh. wrote about nothing and made it fascinating.
3: You know? That is absolutely true. So, is it is it a man thing or a New England thing that you can't call your best friend your best friend? What's that about? You talk about that. You're too, talking. You're hall. talking about
9: my uh, at the swimming hall, the trip yeah. to the swimming hall. Yeah, my very very fond acquaintance yes. that I've known yes. for 25 yes. years. Yes, I don't want you, anyone to tell him that I consider him to be my best friend, because uh, we are both from New England. Mm-hmm. I from Massachusetts, he from Connecticut. Uh, we are emotional cripples as a result. Uh, crippling emotional insecurity is what this region was built on, and I don't want to reveal my true feelings to him. So <laughs> I'm happy that. to tell you, but please don't tell him I that he's my that. best friend.
3: <laughs> I love that.
1: So can we talk about something other than your pointless little book for a second? Sure. Uh, when, I always wonder when somebody has a wild success, like the PC, Mac thing, when you're doing them, and you for those, I assume everybody's seeing do you know before the world sees them, is there a PC who says, I know this is going to be huge, or is it, are you too myopic to know? No, I
9: was, I, I was too profoundly panicked you were, to really? assess it. Yeah, well, because... You know, I had just gone on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart a couple of months before I auditioned for those ads. And my being on television is implausible. <laughs> you know, like anyone who can see me here at the Boston Public Library knows there's no reason I should be on television. But I had written a book of absurd fake facts called mm. The Areas of My Expertise. Those are all your books prior to this one, That's correct? right. Yeah, That's they, right. They, were, yes. they, were, they were all... I was doing fake news before it was really <laughs> <Fake> popular, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I had gone on The Daily Show to promote it, and John and I had a good time chatting, and, and unbelievably, he invited me to join the cast. I was in my mid-30s. I look the way I do. I, I think I look worse. <laughs> uh, but... And, and suddenly I'm I had so this I co- loved completely this, unexpected career on camera and was asked to audition for these ads. And I went to the, I, I went to the audition because I thought it would be a story. I've always, I'm always mm-hmm. chasing stories. And I thought the story would be that I, I went to audition for this big ad campaign, didn't get the job. Uh, But then I did get the job, and I ruined the story,
1: and I'm sorry. But did you, I mean, the truth, you know, when I see, we've had this discussion a lot on the air over the years. When I see, like, I I love comedy, like I guess everybody does. When I see something that is horrible, I say to them, how are there professionals that didn't know how unfunny this particular thing was? When I watch that, what I'm trying to get to, once you did it, did you not know that this thing is, like, off the charts Wild. That was funny. my
9: first non-sitting-down-on-camera acting I had Is ever done. Is that really done. true? Yeah. I mean, that's a, I, I accidentally got this incredible opportunity. But I'll tell you what—I what made it work was that Justin Long, who played the yeah. Mac, and I ha- had and continue to have immediate friendship and
1: chemistry. He's great in this too. And
9: Phil Morrison, the the director, uh, who's directed amazing movies like Junebug was incredibly intuitive in bringing out of both of us a real, a real warmth and friendship between those two characters that were pitched to be enemies.
1: We're talking to John Hodgman. His latest book is Land: True Stories of Painful Beaches. He's at, uh, at uh, where are you again tonight? At the Brattle the Theater. The Brattle Theater. It's sold out, but there's some Stephen King movie afterwards that you're going to be introducing. I'm going to be introducing right? The Dead Zone. Exactly, yeah. The Dead Zone. So
3: you did this thing, were you before or after Obama when you did that t- TV radio after. thing in 2009? After, I saw it. it after. It was after, correct? I, did,
9: I performed comedy yeah. for the, the, the President of the United States in 2009, whose name was Barack Obama, if you remember him. We do. We do. It seems very long ago, yeah, doesn't it? it does. Uh, it was the Radio and Television Correspondence Award dinner, which is considered to be junior nerd prom in DC after the <laughs> White House Correspondence Dinner, which is senior prom. Yeah. And it was a very intense experience and comedically very challenging because he had been in office for three minutes at that point. There there really wasn't much that he had done that you could make a joke around. And there was still a lot of question I mean w- a lot of questions on the left about whether he was really a liberal and a lot of questions on the right as to whether he was really a United States citizen or a citizen of Earth.
3: That's right. And, That's absolutely true. And basic
9: and my question was I knew that he, had, uh, he was reported to have given Leonard Nimoy the Vulcan salute when traveling through Chicago. I wanted to know whether Barack Obama was really a nerd, so I gave him a nerd quiz. I asked him a bunch of trivia questions from uh, Conan the Barbarian comics, and he was, did not do very well. So,
1: can, <laughs> you know, I'm a, so how freaked out were you? Then? I'm sorry to keep going into these inter-whatever kind of things. Please. I'm an only, only child. I love talking well, about myself. Well, I'm an myself. only child, too. Oh. When you say that, doesn't everybody say, oh, that explains everything? It, Don't it they does. do not they, are both that.
9: members of the, the worldwide super smart afraid of conflict narcissist. Exactly, <laughs> I, I didn't know that's
1: what it was called, but yeah, I yeah. belong to that too. Yeah. Uh, so how? Well, because we each think we're the only member. Before Bill Cosby couldn't be spoken about positively, I yeah. spoke a, a, after him at a UMass alumni thing. I didn't right. go to UMass, like. 20 years ago i was so scared i almost couldn't breathe yeah how scared were you when you were speaking after the president of the united states and he's sitting four feet away yeah and in the beginning at least he eventually got into it i watched it again this morning right he didn't really think you were that funny he was pretending no he didn't in the first couple of minutes he was being nice and then he really got into it, it, it i had to win you over. Admit a, all, look at the look on your face you i, had to, the I truth. had to
9: win over a lot it's a hard room for comedy It's a terrifying thing to perform for the president of the United States, particularly one that you voted for. And yeah, I had to win him over because I had some really obscured uh, uh, Dune references from the novel Dune that people did not get. I had to learn the crowd a little bit. But so I how do you feeling? But he, it? but he did give me the Vulcan salute. I know. I, I know. thought I was going to have to force him to do it. But the minute I said Leonard Nimoy, I didn't even say that. I said Len, and all of a sudden he's throwing up the Vulcan "Live long and prosperous It was amazing. So, so,
3: so you're a comedian. You, you've performed with the former President of the United States, Michelle Wolf, the comedian. I followed him. I had to you follow him, him. You and it was infuriating. Steve he, he is good delivery. Yeah, back then? No, no. yeah, he's got chops. He does. he does. everything good. Yeah, no, he he does. Very. He's, Made he's really got that mad. great timing but um michelle wolf that got into such a mess mm-hmm. after she was at the uh the washington Correspondents' uh dinner and then i saw part of her show and i thought her, it was a riot but, yeah she's uh, w- amazing was she rightly or wrongly trashed wrongly
9: wrongly completely wrongly. why well you know the, the thing that really bothered me um was she made a comparison uh, obviously of physical resemblance comparison between Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the actress who, who plays Aunt Lydia on The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. And the comparison obviously was drawing on their physical resemblance, which they have. They have a physical resemblance. But the brunt of the joke was that this character is uh, is a horrible villain uh, who is upholding a, a, a dictatorship uh, in a dystopic uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, frankly. but uh, and, and what bothered me about it was that everyone interpreted... The insult to be, how dare you compare Sarah Huckabee Sanders to this woman physically? Because it's automatically an insult. Well, that woman, who's the actor whose name, it's Anne Ramsey, I think, but no, no, that's a different person. I'm blanking on her name. Whatever her name is. She's an incredible actor. She happens to not look like a lot of people who are on television, which is a testament to her skill as an actor. I would be happy to be compared to her in any way. To say that comparing yourself to her automatically as an insult is an insult to huge numbers of people who don't look skinny
1: and on television it shouldn't be taken as an insult that's how i felt about it on that note nice to see you john yeah, thank thanks. you so much for coming yeah. by
3: john hodgman is an actor comedian and writer his latest book is vacation land true stories from painful beaches up next actor and activist george takei is here to talk about a new musical based on his real life experiences This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Today we're on tape replaying some of our favorite discussions. Among them, the one we had with actor and activist George Takei, who joined us earlier this year, to talk about a new musical that's called Allegiance, which is based on his own experiences living in a Japanese-American internment camp. Welcome to Boston Public Radio. Good to be here. You know, I was about to say I'm thrilled to meet you, but then I just realized, is anybody not thrilled to meet you? I mean, seriously, (laughs) for a variety of reasons, they are. You're too humble to say that, but everybody's thrilled to meet you, yes? Well, no, I do have uh, people that don't agree
10: with... uh Some of my thoughts. Other than Donald Trump, who might that be, George
1: Takei? George, could you describe, I mean, as I said a minute ago, uh, uh, the play, as I learned, is in great part inspired by your personal experience, your family's, but for those who haven't seen it yet, and I went Sunday, and I'm telling you, if you don't see it, you're making a huge personal mistake. Tell us the story of allegiance, if you would. Well, it's the story of the imprisonment of innocent people of
10: Japanese ancestry, innocent Americans of uh, Japanese ancestry, who overnight, because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor by uh, by Japan, simply because we happened to look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor, we were looked at with suspicion and fear and outright hatred simply because of our ancestry. And uh, the first thing that uh, happened was young Japanese Americans rushed to their recruitment center like all young americans and volunteered to serve in the u.s. military this act of patriotism was answered with a slap on the face they were denied military service and categorized as enemy aliens
1: it was totally irrational absolutely crazy and it began from there. You know, for those uh, people, I am one of them. I hate when people say, for those people who say, <laughs> my God, a musical about internment of 120,000 Japanese, I'm depressed enough already about the state of the world. That what this does, and I said this to you when I met you a couple of minutes ago, I intellectually knew a decent amount about this, but this puts a human face on this in a way, by the way, it, that at times is joyful. Is humorous. I mean, it's, it's a fa- families who are living through some horrors, but also some joy expressed through love and all those sort of things. And you, how old were you? Four? When I was five when we, uh, the soldiers came to. Take for four us away. years, yes? Uh, for the duration of the war, yes. What was your family's life like prior to being taken away?
10: Well, we lived in a two bedroom home on a street called Garnet Street. Uh, my father had. Uh, a very successful uh, dry-cleaning business in the Wilshire District of uh, Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. very successful. Um, My mother was a housewife, but simply because we were of Japanese ancestry. And on February 19th, 1942, so it was uh, a little um, more than uh, two months afterwards, uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the soldiers came to our home, That morning, my parents got me up very early and dressed us hurriedly, my brother a year younger, and me, and our baby sister. And my my brother and I were told to wait in the living room. And so we were just gazing out the front window when suddenly we saw two soldiers carrying rifles with shiny bayonets on them, marching up our driveway, stomped up the porch, with their fists began pounding on the door. And my father answered it, and literally at gunpoint, we were ordered out of our home. My father gave my brother and me little uh, luggages that they had prepared for us, and we followed him out onto the driveway and stood there waiting for our mother to come out. And when she came out, she was carrying our baby sister in one arm, a huge duffel bag in the other, and tears were streaming down. Her face. And that's what we wanted to do with Allegiance, as you say, to humanize the story. Because, the, you know, there are people that uh, have read about it, uh, know about it intellectually, and I've been on speaking engagements throughout the country. Uh, we founded a museum called the Japanese American National Museum. In L.A., yes. In L.A., yeah. but an affiliate of the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, intellectualized.
1: We wanted to hit people in the heart. Well, let me tell you, you do. It, it, from beginning to end, you do. Do you remember what you just described, or do you, are you just relating stories that were told to you by your family members? Because you were just a little kid. I was five years old. Do you
10: remember any of it? I remember that morning. It was such a terrorizing morning to have these soldiers come in, pound on the door, and the whole house seemed to, to reverberate with it. But... In fact, um, when we were on the train being taken away and there were armed soldiers at both ends of each car as if we were criminals, I asked my father, Daddy, where are we going? And he stopped to think for a while and he said, uh, we're going for a long vacation to a place called Arkansas. I'd never heard that name before, Arkansas. It sounded exotic to me. And so I thought, ooh, we're going for a vacation in Arkansas. And for me, that's what that experience was.
1: Even when you were there for the number of years? Well, you know, I saw my parents'
10: uh, concerned faces and sometimes my mother weeping and all. But, you know, children adapt amazingly to the most grotesquely abnormal Mm -hmm. circumstances But my reality was catching polywogs in the uh, water, uh, the the bayou, and watching them turn into frogs.
1: We're talking to the legendary George Takei, (laughs) who is more legendary by the day, I should say, for the things. You know, one of the things as I'm sitting at the theater watching this uh, incredible thing on Sunday, uh, I was thinking about the president, the president then, and when lists are made from either real people or historians who are the greatest presidents in American history. Uh, Lincoln is almost always once, I think there's a virtual consensus, and Roosevelt is always two or three. Can you say that Roosevelt was a great president of the United States after this? When I was a teenager, uh,
10: I became very curious about my childhood uh, imprisonment. And I couldn't find anything about it in the history books. I'd read civics books, and I was inspired by the the high ideals of our democracy. And so I went to the only person that I could talk uh, to about the internment, my father. And we had many long and sometimes heated uh, discussions. And my father, I learned about American democracy from my father, Mm -hmm. a man who bore the uh, burden of, well, the anxiety and the humiliation and the rage uh, and the sense of loss, Uh, I learned about American democracy from him. He said, despite what we went through, our people's democracy is still the best in the world. He said an authoritarian government is the easiest because you just lay back and let the man do it to you.
1: But that was authoritarian but, uh, government as related to you and 120,000 exactly. other Americans.
10: And the way he explained that was this is a people's democracy. And it can be as great as the people can be, but it's also as fallible as people are. And people who have done great things are also human beings. He said President Roosevelt during the 30s pulled the nation up from a crushing depression. People were jobless, homeless, hungry and he was able to bring them out. But he was also a human being who got stampeded by the hysteria and and, and the fear of that time. He was a human being and he did a horrible thing. He said a lot of great people did horrible things. At that time we had a man named Earl Warren, as the Attorney General of California. He was very ambitious, he told me. My father did. He wanted to run for governor. And he saw that the single most popular issue uh, at that time in California was the lock-up-the-Japs mm. issue. And so this Attorney General, who knew the Constitution, got in front of the, law, uh, for the uh, that issue. And he made an amazing statement. He said... We have no reports of sabotage or spying or fifth-column activities by Japanese Americans. And that is ominous, because the Japanese are inscrutable. You don't know what they're thinking, so it would be prudent to lock them up before they do anything. So for this Attorney General, Earl Warren, the absence of evidence
1: was the evidence. And he got elected governor on that issue and went on to be for young people listening who don't know a little piece of their history arguably one of the most celebrated uh, supreme court chief justices the in liberal American history. i know supreme that court chief justice well i'll tell you i'll state the obvious for everybody listening your father was a far bigger man than i will ever be i should uh, say that in <laughs> far more forgiving you we're know talking. i agree with you i i, I realized later in life what an amazing man my yeah. father was. Well, he sounds like it. You know, before we leave the play and talk about other things in your life, what's the word Gaman mean, which I had never heard until Sunday afternoon? What's it mean? It's a word that means fortitude,
10: uh, resilience, but it also encompasses uh, the various aspects of strength. It's the strength to find beauty under harsh circumstances, to, find, to create your joy. And to fall in love, that's all part of resilience, that life must go on. And that's why we have uh, a production number, uh,
1: me, uh, The Mess All Dance. Well, we're going to hear it, actually. The reason uh-huh. I brought it up, there's a little, just a little piece of uh, a song uh, from the uh, show, from Allegiance, where Gamon is the centerpiece. Please Gamon. Gaman, Gaman. Action on the Gamon, my apologies. Gamon, here it is. powerful by the way you have a lot of great performers let me just say as i'm advocating for people to go there are a lot of great ones grace you who plays the lead the woman is just otherworldly. i mean Isn't she, she is fantastic she is huge she is just spectacular she was in the los angeles oh i didn't as know as that well, she yeah. was we're talking to george takei who's the sort of the guy behind allegiance which she really should go see He's, well we were speaking about one president can we speak about another one for a sure. second there george the current one I just picked a random tweet. From, by the way, if you go to George Takei's uh, twi- a Twitter page, I love this because obviously most of us got to meet you as Mr. Sulu, not as this activist. Here's what, how he describes himself. Some know me as Mr. Sulu from Star Trek, but I hope all know me as a believer in and a fighter for the equality and dignity of all human beings. Here's what, one of your tweets the other day. The things that most amaze me is the highest office of the land has been demeaned by a two bit con man with nearly an ounce of integrity, even less actual gray matter in his woolly head. Yet the spineless GOP props up this awful, dangerous choke. Let's vote <laughs> let's vote the scum out. Are you a hopeful man? I mean I would assume after what you live through and after the stories you just said of your father, are you a hopeful? person or do you get my my radio co-host you don't get to meet today acknowledges she suffers from trump derangement syndrome <laughs> and she has a hard time sort of digging herself out are you a hopeful guy i have no hope for the man that's in the white house now i
10: mean for this country. i am hopeful that we will be rid of him this year i think uh, the Mueller, uh investigation uh, will take care of that and before the year is out he is a disaster I mean, he, he's a wrecking crew. What he did yesterday, pulling out of the uh, uh, Iran uh, nuclear compact, uh-huh. he says, America first. Well, we're, our gasoline prices are going to skyrocket, pulling us out of all these international compacts. We are going to be isolated. Uh, we are backing out of everything. He, 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 you know, he's not uh, leading from behind. He is leading by dropping out.
1: But how do you feel about the country that your father praised, as you described before, that elected him? I mean, th- this was not a, a, a coup. Uh, uh, the people, and you can argue Electoral College, but frankly, that that's the way the constitution works as of the well moment. i think
10: he's the be- uh, best reason for getting rid of the electoral college i'm with you by the way we- that's whether it's trump
1: related or, or not i, I agree with you. it's now, antiquated now i don't want to impugn your integrity george takei but we know you have a little bit of a history with donald trump and i hope i,
7: hope, I, hope I have a checkered i hope your opposition is all as a
1: matter of principle but for those who don't remember <laughs> donald trump the citizen fired a guy by the very same name george takei on episode three of the fifth season of Select. Celebrity apprentice. Now, why were you fired, George? Do you remember what your task was that you apparently failed to do? I was the team leader. Yes, you were. Of the men's side. Yes, you were. We were divided
10: into men and women's uh, uh, teams. We were to decorate the uh, windows <laughs> at uh, Lord & Taylor's. Yes, you were. Fifth Avenue department store. And I still think that we won our window was far classier. I mean, we had, uh, we had two windows to decorate. And we had uh, models that uh, looked like a, a twins that were in those two windows, one doing the evening gowns and the
1: other doing uh, the uh, resort. Uh, and yours was uh, the best.
10: We, oh, it was classy.
1: Well, it, let me just say, you, you're leaving out they, a pretty important part of the story, Whose clothing line were you supposed to be displaying? (laughs) I mean, how about telling the whole. Whose clothing line was it? Well, nepotism is a. Alive and well. And who was it? It was uh, Ivanka's design. And here's the moment, by the way, where obviously at least one person did not agree that George and his team had done the best job. Here's what we all heard on season three George, you're fired. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity. And you're a terrific man. You're a terrific man. When you knew citizen, this is a serious moment. (laughs) When you knew citizen Trump as opposed to the president, did you see any, just think he was just an entertainer and buffoon like? And did you see any of the venal side of this in him or, or, or no? I saw an
10: opportunity with him at one of the uh, press conferences uh, with the whole cast. Near the end of it, uh, I wanted to uh, put Donald Trump on record. He had uh, – uh, New York didn't have marriage equality then, mm-hmm. and I was advocating for marriage equality yeah, at that, that time. And so near the end of that press conference, I said, Mr. Trump – I'd like to invite you to have lunch with me, on me, I will Host, to discuss marriage equality. And I fully expected him to demur so that at least we had it on public record that uh, he did not want to discuss that with me. But he surprised me. He said, you know what, George, that might be an interesting discussion. We're on. Have your people con- contact my people and so forth and so on. It took about three months, but we did meet for lunch. <clears throat> and I explained to him that as a businessman, which you are, it will be profitable for you to, have, uh, to get marriage equality in New York. People would, uh, LGBT people would love to get married in New York, stay in your mm-hmm. hotels, eat in your restaurants, maybe get married in your uh, banquet. What did he say to you? He said, you know, George, I agree with you on that. And I said, well, wh- why are you opposed to marriage equality? His answer was... I believe in traditional marriage. Now, it took Except his. All the restraint for, for me to comment on it. But he really doesn't believe what he's saying.
1: I mean, I knew from, you know, way Or back he doesn't then. believe what he's now saying. I mean, a lot of people Exactly. Die. It's in character. You know, I had the pleasure of, you, I know, and everybody listening who knows anybody, you know, you and your, your partner of two decades and now your spouse, Brad, yes. who I met a few minutes ago. I was really thrilled to do that. Two, uh, first license in West Hollywood. What did that feel like at that moment, after being with someone and loving him like you did for so long? What did that feel like when you got that license? We campaigned
10: really hard. I I joined with the, uh, we joined with the uh, uh, Human Human Rights Rights Campaign, campaign, HRC. We went all over the country speaking uh, together. Uh, for marriage equality we wanted we had it in california but we uh you know it was just uh, a patchwork throughout the country we wanted it to be an american right you know
1: it started right here justice marshall who wrote the opinion is an occasional guest in that very chair that you're sitting in i Church, am very okay? honored to be i knew you would there. be when you said that. when you read 2003
10: it. was when you got it from the right. state supreme court and two years later In California, we got it from the people's representatives. Mm -hmm. Our state uh, legislature, Mm -hmm. both the Senate and the Assembly, voted uh, for marriage equality. One more vote was needed. A signature of our governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And when he campaigned, he campaigned by saying, I'm from Hollywood. I I Uh, I, I work with gays and lesbians. But he's a hypocrite, and when the bill landed on his desk, he vetoed. And that's what brought me out. I was closeted all my life. I didn't know that. Up until then, yes. I, because I see a friend of yours, by the way? I assume you know him. From, I, well, I met him, okay. but I would not characterize okay. him as a friend.
1: And so that, is, that was the, the moment, that was the tipping point for you. We were so
10: years. angry that I decided, you know, I've had an all right oh. career. I was willing to sacrifice
3: george takei is an actor and activist he joined us earlier this year to talk about the musical allegiance which is based on his real life experience of living in a japanese-american internment camp thanks for tuning into another edition of boston public radio we want to thank our crew chelsea merz Amanda mcgowan jason teresky tori bedford molly boygon our engineers are john the claw parker doug Sugertz, Eddie Hickey, Miles Smith, and David Goldstein. we a production of WGBH Boston Public Radio.